Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. And I'm beyond. I mean, I'm Dan Pfefferman. And welcome to Juanced. <laughs> We're you. excited. Uh, everyone's here for another great episode of the show. And Dan thinks he's a comic. And before we're going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms later in the week, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly when we record. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwans Podcast, as well as our website, you guessed it, juwans.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, where you can check out Benny's graphic design skills that are improving from episode to episode. We are at Juanced on Twitter, at Juanced Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juanced wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. And of course, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. It really makes a difference. How you doing, man? Dude, I got to point out something. They're not sponsoring us, but I am drinking, if anyone can watch. Dr. Pepper Zero. I've how long have I been in Israel? Sixteen years. I've been waiting for this moment for so long. <laughs> I'm so happy. Okay, I have to point that because Jennifer doesn't know this guy is this like guy. the biggest health nut, ridiculous CrossFit six times a week. Like, oh, you don't even realize. I love my so the fact pepper. that he started on an episode of the podcast and an episode about food, no less, with. Dr. Pepper Zero. 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 Um, it's, are you okay? You take your meds? No. <laughs> Do you remember that ad? I'm a pepper. He's a pepper. No. You remember that? Oh, no. Maybe it was before your time. <laughs> you have to look it up because you're such a fan. It was a classic ad. Yeah. Back in the way back, back in time. <laughs> so, maybe you can, uh, maybe, maybe you can um, identify with this from the other angle there. When you live in Israel for so long and we've been here mm. for 16 years, 18 years, there are things that come from like, you know, the, the old country that if you find out where they are, you would literally drop anything you were doing that day to take a road trip to find them. And I be- did <laughs> because it's like, wait a second, they have. And in his case, it was you know, Doc, Dr. Pepper. In my case, it might be, you know, they have like Entenmann's or something. And it's like, wait a second, oh. they're selling Entenmann's. They're, they're an hour away. OK. And do they close like are they going to be up? Okay, we're, we're on our way. We're on our way. Look, I, I grew up, I grew up, uh, I, I lived here as a little kid. And then I grew up in a half Israeli household in the States. And so when I made Aliyah, also at a relatively young age, right after college, I don't really miss a lot of American products. Uh, uh-huh. And this is like 
maybe the one thing that I really, really missed, may, literally the one thing, you know, I know a lot of my American friends who like look for Kedem grape juice and, you know, the paper towels and like, like I don't Kirkland know. and Costco stuff. Yeah. Costco stuff and like all these uh, things. And I'm like, I definitely don't care about any of that stuff, but diet Dr. Pepper. That's my thing. There that's, you go. That's my thing. So yeah. It made an impression on, well, you know, everybody <laughs> has that food or that product. What, what's yours? That's the interesting thing. Well, you know, I'm just remembering many years ago when I was in Israel, I wasn't there living there as long as you, but I do remember at one point I just wanted oatmeal and I found it because, you know, in America, you're smiling, Betty. I see because oatmeal is such a let's say <laughs> Western North, uh, like it's North American because it's European. If you know, it's mm-hmm. brought up by Europe, British, maybe. And uh, I found this oatmeal and I went to check it, check out. And I couldn't believe how expensive it was. <laughs> and the woman was so not like, you know, give me, I don't know, maybe it was $10. It was like crazy. <laughs> and I was like, what? I mean, it's like the cheapest, most basic thing in the U.S., you know? And then, you know, she basically looked at me like, well, you're going to buy it or not? You know, like, <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess I'll get it because I really want it. But I was totally in shock. <laughs> I, I remember when we first moved here, we used to bring back peanut butter from the States. Peanut butter. Because you couldn't find yeah. it here. And if you did find it here, it was like $10, literally $10 a jar yeah. of Jiffy. And now it's it like a normal thing and you can find it in any supermarket. And it's like, it, you know, but uh, yeah, the the last thing that I really miss is Dr. Pepper. So there it is. We found it. We you found it. You should tell them. They'll be very honored. Maybe they'll put you in a poster or something. And I have to thank Benny Seriously. for. I have to thank Benny for for finding it at his local. Get a sponsor. Yeah, yeah. right. It's, it's actually true. I'm embarrassed. I I you should be. I enable Dan's addiction to uh, to diet sodas. He. Uh, it's not an addiction. I was driving. I can control by, it. I was driving by a mini. <laughs> you can control. I was driving by a mini market where I live, and I I saw it on the on the shelf, and I'm like, I gotta call Dan. The funny thing is there are far more international and and specifically Americans here where I live in Rehovot than where you live in Gadara, which is kind of odd because this is a very American product. Anyway, what what are we doing today on the show, Benny? Well, (laughs) we're going to talk about food that has nothing to do with Dr. Pepper or diet Dr. Pepper or things that are... I think that's a better idea. Or or anything processed or, or, or... (laughs) <laughs> made with high fructose corn syrup and something called fake, fake high fructose, phenylalanine and asphyl. I don't even know what I'm saying. We're going to talk about real food. Uh, so this would but be, you know, it's a good segue. Yeah, it is a good segue. Thank you. <laughs> because Thank you. it is, even if it, I've come to the defense of Dan, that even if it's not a quote unquote healthy in its process, whatever, I think it totally speaks to food memory and how mm. the things that we do remember regardless of what it is or was we do have a memory of something hankering for something a nostalgia from something and obviously this was one thing you had back in the states even though you've been there for a long time you're like wow i really miss that so i think it totally is connected to what we're doing it's just that it's um i like it to be a soda i like it all right, so check it out. As you know, Juwans is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners just like you to make sure that we're able to continue to deliver awesome content, terrific guests, and interesting perspectives here on uh, Juwanced. Uh, so if you would like to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can easily do that on our PayPal account. Even better. Even better. You can make an ongoing contribution to Juwanced on our Patreon Find out information about how to do that. Go to our website, www.juanced.com. And I should say that Juanced 
due to the support of listeners like you is growing uh, leaps and bounds. Dan, I think that we have a running tally of something like, what, 90? 90, we have listeners in 97 countries, and that's not including the Facebook listeners. That's just the audio downloads. That's crazy. If you want to support Juwants, visit us today, www.juwants.com. We'd love your support. and uh, You can also sponsor us if you have a business or an organization that you'd like to plug to our audience, or you can book us for a Juwants Live, where we will do a live event, whether virtual or hopefully soon in person. So we've done it already with uh, Meet the Emiratis for a number of Jewish communities, and we can do it on any subject that interests you. And we have a great network of guests that we can uh, bring to your community and uh, facilitate a fantastic conversation with them. Terrific. So if you haven't guessed yet, our guest is is somewhat into understanding food. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and she is Jennifer Abadi. Jennifer Abadi lives in New York City and is a researcher, developer, and preserver. This is the part where I, where I talk about you in front of you and you sit and you, and you just listen and... It's, it, you know, we try not to make it awkward, but uh, you're a preserver of Sephardic and Judeo-Arabic recipes and food customs, a culinary expert in the Jewish communities of the Middle East, Mediterranean, Central Asia, and North Africa. She teaches cooking at the Institute of Culinary Education, or ICE, the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan, and Context Conversations at Context Travel. In Did you addition, say ICE? ICE. That's a problem. Yeah. We, we need to talk about Yeah, that. I know. It's not, it doesn't have a good name. No. no the, the ICE. You can is, say ICE because it's really... The letters. <laughs> She's not an agent. Yeah, but it's she is not tracking down illegal immigrants to the U.S. No, no, no. Whether you're for or against right. that, but she is. But she oh, is no. doing Jewish food and culture tours. Oh no, Dan. Yeah, okay. in Manhattan's right. Lower East Side, uh, she works as a personal chef in the New York City area and offers private, in-person, and virtual cooking lessons. Her cookbook memoir, A Fistful of Lentils: Syrian Jewish Recipes from Grandma Fritzy's Kitchen, is it. a collection of recipes and stories from her family. Her second cookbook, Too Good to Pass Over. Sephardic and Judeo-Arabic Seder menus and memories from Africa, Asia, and Europe provides an anthropological as well as historical context to the ways in which the Jewish communities of North Africa, Asia, the Mediterranean, and the Middle East observe and enjoy this beloved ancient festival. Uh, for further information on her classes, lectures, demos, and, and if you just want to look her up and find her online, visit www.jenniferabadi.com. Jennifer, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you. We're I'm so excited. We're, we're so excited we could get you on the show right yeah. before the holiday of Pesach, the holiday of Passover, which is coming up uh, just next week. So My this is a holiday. very timely episode. Did I do a good job of describing who you are and what you do? Did we miss anything in the bio? Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I think you got it. I your, got, your, I think you your got the highlights. Size, yeah. Your shoe size and your, <laughs> you know. <laughs> What else? Yeah, no, you you got the the got, main gist the of it all. So let let me let me ask you this: as we're going into into Pesach, uh, how how is it celebrated differently in the in the Sephardic and Mizrahi uh, community in New York uh, and and in general? And is it something that people are aware of where you are? Well, in the U.S. Uh, you probably know most the, of the Jewish communities coming from Europe, Eastern Europe in particular. So Germany, uh, Russia, Poland, um, the Ukraine, that region. So um, the majority of what's known uh, and the customs and the rituals and the foods are tied into the Eastern European or Ashkenazi, as we say, which means Germanic, right? It literally means German. 
So I, I thought it was um, Ashkenazi I, for not seasoned food. That's what I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, it does. It does range even in the Ashkenazi world in terms of flavors and ingredients. And I, in all fairness, I think that the Ashkenazim <laughs> get kind of lumped up into one group too. They do. They but um, definitely, that is the sort of port of re- point of reference for not only in the Jewish community of the United States and North America, but the non-Jewish, non-Jewish community and what they think is Jewish and what is Passover. So um, I think a lot of people are more aware more and more with Passover and the different rituals and traditions um, that other communities might observe and do, um, but they're still surprised and still learning. And, and the truth is that people still like to keep their traditions, even if um, they like the other traditions, they're mm-hmm. curious. So and it's kind where, and, and I would say most of my audience is actually Ashkenazim, mm-hmm. even though so they're because they're the ones that are curious about the other, <laughs> you know, the the other part of the yeah. community. What, which um, community are you from? Which uh, kind of Jewish ethnic background? Syrian is from? from Syria. Syrian from uh, Halab or from uh, Halabi? Yeah, You're from Halabi. Aleppo. Awesome, yeah. awesome. So actually, the largest, you know, it used to be, I think. Unless I'm wrong, it used to be, I think, that the largest Syrian Jewish community was in New York, specifically in Brooklyn. Now it might be that the largest is in Israel, but the second largest expat, if you will, or community is still in New York, uh, in Brooklyn. And then there are a few other communities now that they've kind of moved out to other places, but still along nearby. Culturally speaking, are are the two communities different? Which two? The the Syrian Jewish community in Israel uh, and the Syrian Jewish oh. community in New York. Well, I mean, beyond you know, the fact that some are Israeli and some are Americans, of course. Right. So I think they are a bit different, except that it... So, for example, I think that a lot of the community, when we talk about the Syrian Jewish community, which is already specific, we also are talking about a, uh, an Aleppo community. So there are, there is, we, we call Shami or right. Halabi, right? So Shami is like the ancient word Sham for the Damascus, yeah. uh, which is the capital now. But, you know, it used to be uh, Aleppo mm-hmm. in back, 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 back in time. Um, so um, the community that first was, I wouldn't say that they're the only ones that established themselves here, but the one that really established itself in a, major, in a majority, in a large numbers in Brooklyn um, were from Aleppo. So they were coming not only from the Syrian traditions, but they were coming from the Aleppo traditions of Syria. Um, and how long How long have they been in, how long has the community been in the United States? Or, or so let, let me ask I, that in a slightly different way. Yeah. When did the Aleppo community start migrating out of Syria and going to other parts of the world, not just the United States? Okay, so I'll answer that in sort of two different ways. Like the, I was doing an, an event recently for the Brooklyn Museum and Brooklyn Library. And um, they were doing a whole thing on the Jews of Brooklyn, like only the Jews of Brooklyn. And one of the things I talked about was how maybe one of the first, according to records that they can find um, of Syrian Jews coming were in the late 1870s. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and you can find Jews coming way back in time, right? A lot of, in fact, the first Jews coming to North America um, and to the United States were Sephardic Jews. Um, so that, that I always find interesting, especially when you think about how the majority ended up being until today, 
Ashkenazim, and that's as a result of what was going on in Europe, namely the, the, the two wars, World War I, World War II. But actually the first were Sephardim, and many of them were coming and went to Latin South and Central America, and also came to the United States. And you have one of the oldest uh, synagogues, even in my neighborhood, the Spanish uh, uh, Portuguese synagogue. Yeah. Um, so they're coming from those roots, which are already very specific. The Spanish Portuguese uh, synagogue has its own particular uh, rituals and traditions too that are particular to that community and the time in which they came here that don't are not necessarily just you could say Sephardic in itself right so they mm-hmm. have their own things that they do even now um, so going back to when they really started coming in earnest I would say that while some of them were still um, settling on the Lower East Side initially because that was that was um, that's a very important sort of landmark or interesting period of time in the Jewish history of America was Lower East Side. And also for many different immigrant groups, not just the Jews, but I would say that the Lower East Side in Manhattan is sort of the same or has the same importance in history culturally to the Jews here in the United States, as does maybe um, Chinatown in San Francisco to the Chinese or Astoria uh, in Queens to the Greeks in terms of um, the numbers of people that settled there, um, how they really started to become their own and establish their own community that was new away from their country where they came. And then they started to move out um, to Brooklyn, as did many other immigrant groups over time. And a lot of it had to do with, uh, well, there were a few reasons, but one reason was um, because they built the subway line and there's a subway line right there on Houston, if you know the Lower East Side, that started to be built and that could easily take people from Lower Manhattan, which is not that far from Brooklyn, into the next borough. And then in Brooklyn, you had this means of being able to have uh, space, right? Uh, an area that you can carve out to make for your own community, which is so interesting to me, that's a very American thing to do, is um, you come to the United States as an immigrant from all these different backgrounds. And at the same time, you try to find your own community. So if it's already started, already started to be established, you might go to that community because it makes sense, right? You speak the language, you already have a start. If not, you try to make one. And that's what the Syrians did. So I would say, when my great grandfather came, um, was around 1921. Mm. And um, if you understand also what was going on in Syria at the time, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Right. And that was the one of the last footholds of the Ottoman Empire. And there was the Young Turk Revolution. And at that time, then they wanted to um, uh, get more men to um, be in the army to draft. Right. They were yeah. drafting. And my great grandfather was a rabbi and a, and a scholar and he didn't want and as many jews even if they weren't sure. honestly rabbis and it's still the story today i've spoken to friends of mine even in europe and all over the world young people and a lot of times they didn't want to be in the army of their country for many reasons um and so he and he was in aleppo with my grandmother my great grandmother and so what they did was he ended up going trying to be rabbi um in Jerusalem, but in the end, he really wanted to come to the States because 
it seemed like economically things were not good in Syria and the Ottoman and it with the yeah. fall of the Ottoman Empire. There was a lot of unknowns. He said, "I want to go to America. I want to be a businessman. That's what he wanted to be." And so my great grandmother went back to her family that was at the time in. She was from Hebron, um, but she had background coming from Libya. So she went to Jerusalem with my great my grandmother and two of her siblings and waited two and a half years until he was established in Brooklyn as the head. He the story is supposedly that he got off um, the boat and there were already some Syrian Jews waiting for him <laughs> and they convinced him to be the rabbi. Like he wanted to be a businessman and he didn't want to be a rabbi. And they're like, no, 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 we want you to be <laughs> the Halabi <laughs> rabbi for our community. And so he became that for this small synagogue that is still there and a teacher. Um, and then he sent for my great grandmother and my grandmother and two siblings and they established, they lived in a house of walking distance in Brooklyn. And then that's where the Syrian community started to build in Brooklyn. And today they have, um, all their own synagogues and community centers and some grocers and their own world. Is it still, like, I mean, I've heard stories about the the Syrian community, the Halabi community in New York. I've, I've never visited it. Um, is it still kind of that tight insular community that, that at least it used to be known for? It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, yes, certain things definitely have changed since my mother's and my grandmother's time. But it's amazing how much, when you compare them, I think, relatively to other communities yeah. in the Jewish world, especially the Ashkenazim. I mean, there's no comparison, the Syrians to the Ashkenazim. I would say they're a little more similar kind of ways of the Persians. Mm. And we have yeah. also a very large Persian community in the U.S. The biggest one, I believe, yeah. is in L.A., mm -hmm. Toronto, uh, both Jewish and non-Jewish um, uh, Persian community outside of Iran. And then we have a pretty big one also here in Long Island. That's um, maybe the second size. And they, they too also have this sort of old world way of doing things. They love uh, living near their families, extended family kind of life. Um, they keep their traditions. The Syrians love to keep up their rituals, their traditions, their food traditions. But also the Syrians really like to live near each other. Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. You'll have... Yeah, it's and that's not the typical American Interesting. story. But food also definitely plays a very powerful, powerful role in in let's say the passing on of of cultural identity from generation to generation. Um, how, how many, by the way, you know, when we look at the American Jewish community, hard to count, but we're talking between five and seven million, depending on how how strict you want to be with your numbers. Um, how many roughly are Mizrahi slash Sephardic today in the U.S. I'm not sure exactly the number. I, I, I hear um, numbers floated around there of around 10% of that, right? That's it could kind of, that's be. Kind of like I mean, I remember, idea. for example, um, on the Lower East Side, when there was the height of the Jewish immigration on the Lower East Side before they started moving out, they were like, and it was about 75% Jewish down there, mm. which is amazing yeah. in this small area, you know, living close together. Um, and they started leaving uh, around 1920 and moving out to have their own, you know, live in Brooklyn or wherever, Queens. And um, there was maybe 50,000 wow. down there of that were Sephardic or coming from Syria, Turkey, Greece, Balkans. 
So that that tended to be those who were non-Ashkenaz or non-East mm-hmm. European were com- where they were coming from and settled down there versus 500,000 yeah. that were coming from Eastern Europe. So sure. just to show you the difference. So sometimes people are even surprised that there was even 50,000 because they didn't realize that there was anybody <laughs> at all that came from uh, any of these other countries. So that just gives you a sense of the number ratio. Um, and uh, I think today there might be about 70,000 Syrian Jews. Wow. That's not but, a small community. Yeah. So how did you how did you start getting involved with food? Okay. So I used to be a graphic designer and illustrator. Hmm. And I was that for many years. That that I was in the arts, visual arts. Um, and what happened was I landed a freelance job in the art department of a publishing house that's still pretty um, popular today called Workman Publishing, and they did a lot of cookbooks. So I was in the art department. I, obser- I was observing everyone doing cookbooks. We, so I came to it more from a visual arts perspective. And I thought, you know, I need more portfolio pieces. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I think it would be fun to do my own family cookbook for myself. And then I get practice on the computer and laying things out. And so what I did was I took my mother's loose leaf binder of recipes that and stories that she had collected from her grandmother and her um, mother and aunts and relatives when she got married, because she didn't know how to do um, any of the Syrian cooking mm. until she got married, which is an interesting thing in itself. And I'll tell you more okay. about it later. Um, so she had collected with my aunt, her sister, all these recipes and typewritten them on the old onion skin paper with the typewriter, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was like falling out, literally the loose leaf, like everything falling out of the binder. And uh, I said, mom, I'm just going to borrow this for a little while. And I started typing them into the computer and, um, and then designing it, you know, and then because of an illustrator, illustrating it and just sort of making like a little book that I thought I'll just give to my family as a, a way of yeah. having something in our family to refer to to make Syrian cooking. And then over a period of time, it was, I would say, 10 years or more from the moment I did it for a portfolio piece till I actually was out on the shelves. Um, and then when that book was published, that was the cookbook of Fistful of Lentils, which is the Syrian Jewish cookbook. I love that um, name, by the I, way. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, the original title, but we had to shorten was a pinch, was a, a pinch of allspice and a fistful of lentils. Because the idea was when I was cooking with my grandmother, it was like, you know, like a lot of grandmas, like a pinch of this and a full of that. And we used to, my grandmother used to stand there when I was cooking in the kitchen with her and I'd be there with a notebook and a pen. And mm-hmm. just before she would put it, I was like, oh, oh, oh what are you doing? And she's like, kamsha, kamsha, which is like handful, fistful. And I was like, okay. And she was just like. Yeah, it's all, it's all intuitive <laughs> cooking. Right. There's no measurements. <laughs> That's how everyone did it. It's not yeah, just, sure. you know, people would come up to me after my book came out and they would say, you're so, you're so lucky that your uh, grandmother wrote all these things down. And I was like, she didn't write anything down. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was killing myself there in the kitchen, you know, but I was able to watch and, and because I had a sense of basically what to do, I would estimate. And then of course I would redo it at home to get the actual measurements. So that's why it was a pinch of this and a fistful of that. And then we just shortened it to. When you were, when you were growing up, were you watching them cook in the kitchen or, or was this something that came later? So no, well, a little, my what I remember more 
was the smells. And actually a smell, the scent of the food, the smell of the food is actually, you know, that's one of our, as human beings, that's actually, they say, is probably the strongest sense we still have, you know, with all the senses, like visually and hearing and whatever, the scent um, is a very strong um, uh, sense that we have. And I remember the smells. I still remember the smells especially if I close my eyes, I can imagine my great grandmother, what it smelled like to go into her house in Brooklyn when we would visit. Cause I grew up in Manhattan. So I didn't grow up. My mother was the one, the generation who's first generation uh, living in Brooklyn. So um, I remember that. And um, I remember um, her, her speaking, her sound her like her accent. Cause she had an Arabic accent from Syria. So I remember her speaking English and what she sounded like and um, her pastries. I just remember those, the hand, beautiful handmade things that you still, you cannot get anywhere. You can, just, can you send some over can. this way? <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, <laughs> I'll say this. I came into this episode deliberately not eating before just so that I could work up the appetite through it to the end. <laughs> but <it's, laughs> yeah, we, we should be sitting here with food in front of us, right? It's right? like a tasting yeah, right. while we talk. Exactly. We have Dr. Pepper. Yeah, that's a good uh, standard. Like same for thing. Food. Well, what's your favorite food from childhood that you remember? You're mentioning these, these smells. You're mentioning, um, and it's and smell is the that's what connects to memory the most, right? right? Smells always trigger. When she's saying that, I'm thinking like, sure, you're thinking I'm, of your I'm kitchen, of my kitchen. Right? I'm thinking growing up, and I'm thinking of my my mom or my grandfather's house or all the. Th- and it's true. It's like something that's that trivial. Like I don't rem- being six years old and smelling my grandfather's kitchen. I don't. How do I remember that? But you sure. remember it. That's absolutely right. And the and the memory comes flooding back. It, it's out of your control. Like you just. There's all kinds of smells. Like, you know, if I walk down the street and I smell a certain bread baking kind of smell, I always think of France because that's all the bakeries mm-hmm. they had there and the pastries and the boulangerie and all that. So I so and then when I smell certain spices, I think of the souk, the shouk, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the market, the open air market with the big um, bags and barrels of spices you know and it's instant it's just the second i, I kind of in a minute i just kind of freeze and i think of it and it all flashes in front of me and for my great grandmother the smell well in syrian cooking um if you were to have and sort of break it down to maybe especially maybe aleppo but it's also very syrian if you were to say three spices that you need for your pantry that are, are basic is Cinnamon, jot, jot down people. And I'm, I'm jotting. Cumin. Cinnamon, allspice, and cumin. Now, I, I was telling our listeners to jot this down. Oh, right. What, what they need <laughs> to, for their pantry. To get your Syrian pantry going, you've got to have cinnamon, allspice, and cumin. Yeah, very, very warm flavors, very comforting yes, flavors. Earthy, yes. earthy warm. Is, is and allspice? we use those a lot. Sorry. Sometimes, the cinnamon and allspice usually together yeah. in meat dishes. Um, and then cumin, we use a lot too. And then if you're going to go into the, I would say the, the pastries, the sweets and stuff, um, I think of rose water and orange blossom. Oh my God. Yes. Because those have, yeah, very flowery, elegant. Um, and that's what we use for the syrups Yes. and things like that. And what's interesting too, is I, I remember once years ago when I visited Turkey Mm-hmm. And I went to Istanbul and I was taking a bus somewhere that was kind of far. And they 
they had bathroom breaks along the way. And I remember at every break, they would come in, someone would come in and pass along these wipes to wash your hands and to refresh yourself. Oh, yeah, and I opened yeah, it up yeah. and it smelled like rose water. Yeah. And I, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like I was just, it's the rose water, you know, there's just something. And cause to me it connected, it's funny. Cause of course in Turkey, they have a lot of things they share with Syrian sure, cooking. Especially Aleppo, spices. which is like, Northern Syria. And it's yeah, and, uh, yeah. the exchange on the trade routes and the border in Aleppo is very close to uh, Turkey and Syria was part of the Ottoman empire. So there's so many things that they share, but that smell to me, which was funny is of course, it's something that they use in Turkey all the time. But to me as an American but coming with a Syrian background, that's what it represented to me is like Brooklyn uh, in the Syrian Jewish community. So were you sitting you know? there on the bus, like with your face into the, into the white? <laughs> oh, I was like taking oh, a bath in it. I was like, like wiping. It was like a washcloth. I was like around my neck. And <laughs> they're all looking at the bus like, what, the, what is what, she doing? Who is this crazy I, woman? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was, I loved it. And what's interesting too, is that I even read, like, especially when you talk about different traditions that, in some uh, communities, uh, Jewish communities coming from places like Turkey and Syria, um, at uh, the when Shabbat is ending at the at sundown, you know, you, you normally you you pass them around that spice box, spices, right? Yeah. And it's supposed to wake you up. It's like the end of Shabbat, but it's like the beginning, the end in the beginning, right? And so you smell this little uh, box of spices, cloves, things like that. But what some communities do is they actually use the rose water. Mm. That's the thing that mm. they pass around. So it just shows a different use, but um, still how it uh, is is a very important part of the cuisine, right? That yeah. smell is important. I, I used to not like rose water as a kid. In general, I used to not appreciate Middle Eastern pastries as a kid. And now take getting used to. It, yeah. And, Blasphemer. And, no, but, but now I absolutely appreciate it. I don't like sweets that are too sweet yeah and middle eastern pastries are not too sweet and then you have to get used to rose water but it's it's when it's done yes. right or orange blossom when you it's done right yeah. it's it's so beautiful when i you know we we're talking before that i was in the uae and we have friends here listening uh from the uae with us and and i went to a traditional emirati restaurant and they passed around after the food orange scented water to to wash your hands and scent them and kind of take off the food smell mm -hmm. and it was just mm -hmm. kind of took me back it also. neutralizes yeah. it right it was really cool um and, and so it's kind of the same flavors that go like really around the middle east these warm earthy comforting flavors mm -hmm. um yeah they're, they're amazing when done in control <laughs> in control because because if you put too much rose water it can ruin yeah no no it's supposed to be and i understand americans don't are very nervous around it. I know because I teach all the time. So mm. I see, and so I it's almost like I have to give a little warning, like a disclaimer, <laughs> like, okay, right. everybody, we're gonna make the rose water syrup and it is really good and it really works, trust me. But just keep in mind, it is not, you know, it's not meant to be uh, overpowering. It's supposed to be a hint in the background, like yeah. you would perfume. You're not, you know, when someone puts on too much perfume, it's too much. But when there's just an essence floating in the air and then you associate that even with that person, it's like their scent, you know, um, it's in the it's in the syrup and it just all comes together. But definitely, I agree, Middle Eastern pastry or desserts or sweets, um, sometimes it takes you do have to get used to it. And it's very different from the different, uh, yeah. European Western palate. So that's actually yeah. interesting. It's a good segue to to what I actually wanted to ask next, which was, you know, when 
when people came over to America in the beginning, they were greeted by a culture which was obviously very different from where they came, but also in mm-hmm. terms of being able to source ingredients and being able to, you know, replicate the food that they were comfortable with or that reminded them of home, how were they able to, to I mean, we're not talking about 2020 and going into Whole Foods mm. and finding you know, the whole <laughs> spice rack or going, you know, to yeah. the Holy Land Bakery and seeing, yeah. you know, everything you could possibly get from yeah. every country in the Middle East. This was, this was you know, 100 plus years ago. Uh, you know, what, what did, how did the food have to evolve or, or to say it in a different way, did, did Syrian Jewish food or even, you know, or any ethnic, any ethnic, any, any non-American ethnic food? Well, specifically Jewish foods though. I mean, how did they have to evolve? Uh, was it similar to how there's Chinese American food or, or Mexican American food? Is it, is it less? Well, I think there's a common, I, I, I think I like to think or I just, I think there's a common experience with any immigrant group about a lot of things that have to do with food from their culture. I think every, uh, every immigrant group has their foods that they remember from the, their old country, their home country that they yearn for, miss, um, and try to replicate in their new country. I think that's a common story. Um, and then I think um, in terms of, well, there were a few things there. One is when the Syrians first came here and maybe they were on the Lower East Side um, with other Jewish communities and other immigrants that weren't necessarily Jewish, I don't, there, I don't think there was as much of a sharing, connecting in the way people think today about all the Jews coming together. So I think that Eventually, you know, over time, the Jewish community became in the U.S. became a mixed, more mixed community. But when they first I mean, if you think about it, especially the Jews coming from um, Arabic speaking countries Mm. uh, to the Lower East Side, and then they're with mostly German speaking immigrants, both Jewish and non-Jewish, then Russian, Polish, later Hungarian, the Irish were the first big group that made a big impact down there. And the next biggest one uh, was the German Jewish and non-Jewish. And that's how we got our American delis, delicatessens, right? Um, So if you think about it, just logically, right? If you're an immigrant and you're coming to a new country that doesn't speak your language, um, you're gonna feel, reach out and try to find people you can actually speak the language with, right? To communicate, yeah. just to figure out like, how do I do this? Where do I go? Where's the closest bank? Where's this, where's that, right? So I think a lot of the Arab Jews, when they came to Lower East Side and they were, they met the non, you know, the Jews coming from Eastern Europe who speaking Yiddish, they were kind of looking at each other because <laughs> they didn't look exactly the same. They certainly didn't speak the same language, yeah. I mean, the Jews coming from Syria did not speak Yiddish. They right. had no idea. And those coming from Eastern Europe were looking at them like, you're Jewish? You don't speak Yiddish. Like what? So they're kind of, I don't think there was quite that mixing that, you know, maybe the rabbis started to communicate and talk to each other. But in terms of the everyday person, what helped, what maybe allowed them to connect is, okay, they're still Jewish. Maybe they both serve, they both definitely were observant. They observed Shabbat, they observed the holidays. And so that was their way of connecting. But then everything was different. Like if you wanted to cook that food and you wanted to speak your language, um, you had to find others. And so maybe the ones you were speaking to were those who weren't necessarily Jewish, but spoke your language. Um, 
And so, so um, Middle Eastern communities in general, right? Yeah. Like I mean, you know, like if they were Egyptian right. and you were Egyptian or Syrian, or if you were coming from Turkey or Greece, you would speak Turkish or Greek uh, or Ladino, right? The yeah, Jewish sure. communities coming from Turkey and Greece might have, some of them might have been speaking Ladino, which is the Spanish uh, ver- dialect of the Jews. Right, Judeo Spanish. You know? um, so, it, you know, really, and in a way, it was like a reunion, you know, or it, I mean, they were separated for so long. And the interesting thing is then they were kind of reunited, but after so long on the Lower East Side. So I don't think it was quite the initial like, oh, you know, here we are. <laughs> sure. Let's see it. I would actually think that in many ways, I mean, we think today about like Klal Yisrael, like the, the, the people of Israel and, and coming together and whatnot, like you were saying. It's but very theoretical. I, I, of course it is. And I would think that in, in specifically uh, in, in that context, it almost would be more comfortable to associate with people that were from where you were from that weren't Jewish. Because uh, in many ways you wouldn't be faced with I criticism so. of, oh, why are you doing this this way? Where we're from, we do it this way. And that's sure. obviously the right way. And what are you doing in, and vice versa, right? Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, uh, I'm from so. my, my parents are actually listening, hopefully. Yeah, they are. I'm from uh, my mom's Iraqi Jewish and mm-hmm. um, obviously didn't grow up with anyone Sephardic around us uh, or Mizrahi. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Indiana. You mean there's not much diversity in, in northern Indiana? <laughs> More than you'd think, but not a lot. Yeah. And um, I remember going to college and meeting, you know, different kinds of Arabs and Iraqis who, who weren't Jewish. And I was like, oh, OK, we got a lot in common. You know, we like. We like a lot of the same foods and, we, you know, the kind of the same spices and the kind of the same social mentalities. And I was like, oh, this is, okay, very different than my Jewish friends with whom I also connect on different levels. And, uh, okay, I'm connecting a lot with my Middle Eastern friends. And, and so I can totally see that happening, you know, uh, amongst immigrant communities. Um, are you aware, I'm curious, in kind of your research on food, um, are you aware of dishes that the the American, specifically the kind of Brooklyn, New York, Syrian communities cook today that's different than the traditional foods. Um, I guess there's no more Jews left in Syria, but that that the Jews who stayed in Syria and then went to other, Mm -hmm. like to Israel or to other areas would have been cooking. Did foods kind of evolve as they kind of went, traditional dishes Uh, that evolved in different ways? Yeah, for sure. And it it, it kind of goes back to what you were asking before is that – how did they, if they couldn't find those ingredients, which they couldn't always find, what did they do? And I actually had a a real firsthand experience with that when I wrote my cookbook, The Fistful of Lentils, because uh, after I collected all the recipes and I wrote them down, um, I knew certain ingredients were not traditional Syrian ingredients. Like for example, um, we have a cheese pipe called spanach jibin, which means spinach cheese, but it refers to a spinach cheese pie. It's sort of in the frittata family, which is very common in, the, in certain parts of the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and amongst the Sephardic Jews, where you use a lot of eggs and vegetables together. And then it's all, you have many varieties, right? You have- Recipe, uh, please. Che- yeah. <laughs> the recipes worry. will be in the show notes. <laughs> yes, recipes will be in the show notes as well as links. Right. Can buy these <laughs> so um, we had a few versions, and in my one version I had that was from my mother, my grandmother had three or four different kinds of cheeses, but they were using all these cheeses that were readily available here in New York. So like Munster cheese, <laughs> which is the American, I should say, American style of Munster, not the French yeah, not the, or the, the German, Swiss yeah. or the German version, right, from Alsace region. We're talking about 
the American version of the sliced Munster, um, <laughs> American or cheddar, any uh, Munster cheese, <laughs> cottage cheese, right? Cottage, cottage cheese, which cheese. is just pot cheese. It's an yeah. old kind of cheese you might find in Eastern Europe. So that was here a lot, right? And so, and Parmesan. Okay. So it's like a common, a, a mixture of all those with spinach and onions and whatever. Sounds and great. then we would serve it with a cucumber mint yogurt and dressing. What were the cheeses? So, what were the cheeses have typically been? So I think if I was to imagine what they would have been, they would have been more like, I think they would have had, maybe it would have been simpler, maybe one or two cheeses max, maybe not three or four. Um, maybe you would have had a kashkaval, which is a kind of cheese, like a, cow, a cow's milk cheese. Um, Tur- Turkish cheese, no? Semi-soft. Yeah, yeah. They have that in, in Turkey and, and Syria. We have it here in um, Israel. And you, I'm sure you can get yeah. it in Israel and you can get here and like, kosher markets and Middle Eastern markets. Um, and then they might use a salty white cheese of some sort. It could be called feta, but it may not be called feta because that's the Greek name. Um, you know, simple homemade cheeses and then spinach, onions, and very simple. And the eggs, of course. But so there was that. And then there was also, we have this um, bulgur wheat salad that um, we call bazargan. Bazargan is a fine, very fine bulgur, fine, fine bulgur, like um, bulgur wheat was actually the grain in Syria and Lebanon before rice became the fashion yeah. and the staple that they didn't know. I mean, they have sayings about it. They have songs about, there's so much about bulgur. So then rice came later, but because of that, they made, that's, that's where you have the kibbeh, the kibbeh of the sure. you know, with the, the crust, the bulgur crust on the outside. Then there's also fisania, which is in the pan, right? The two different kinds, but similar. Then you have the tabule, (laughs) tabule or tabuli, which is the fine grain bulgur. Okay. It's right. So that we use it all kinds of ways. We use it in a dough. We use it um, in uh, as a pilaf, you know, if it's, if it's coarse grain or we use it in a salad, right? So there's every which way. And so Bazargan is another type of very Syrian and it has these flavor, especially in Aleppo, they like this flavor of tart and sweet combination. So it's like tangy, a little sweet. Um, whereas in Damascus, you have more of a garlic lemon kind of oh, flavor palette. Interesting. And so um, my mother, so in our recipe, um, we use ketchup, American Heinz ketchup, and we use Worcestershire. <laughs> now, of course, Almost the same thing. they didn't have ketchup. They didn't have ketchup <laughs> like we know. That's the most American, you would say, right? It because it's be, the condiment. It's the condiment on our hamburgers that, yeah. and our hot dogs. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the ingredients, both in the ketchup and the Worcestershire, in the ketchup, it's basically salt, uh, con- uh, concentrated tomatoes, uh, maybe a little vinegar, some kind of maybe a little sugar. So all these basic ingredients are things that you would put in anyway uh, into a more or less, you know, it does vary, but into a bazargan to get that right kind of flavor and consistency. And the other thing is tamarind oh, is yeah. a very important ingredient, specifically in Syrian cooking. It doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not a cross spectrum of Middle Eastern food. So the Syrians love to use tamarind. And um, of course, they could not get that or easily get that when they first came here. But somebody smart noticed that Worcestershire sauce, which is a very British condiment sauce in a bottle that Americans were already imported. The British brought it from 
the British were inspired uh, to make it after their conquest India. of India. Yes. And that's what, in, incidentally, right, the word tamarind is yeah. tamar, date, date hind, uh, India. India. Yeah. Indian date. Yeah, yeah, tamar yeah. Hindi. In Arabic, so, yeah. Yeah, so um, they started using someone smart noticed that like, hey, it's like a eureka <laughs> moment. It's like there's tamarind in the Worcestershire. We could use this, and so I started. So somehow it made it into the recipes in my family. Not every Syrian community here is using those ingredients. So I included it there, and I with a little disclaimer saying, of course, these are not the traditional <laughs> ingredients because my poor mother, after the book came out, she started fielding phone calls from the community. Cause they're, again, they're very tight. So of course they're all calling her and they're saying, why do you put that ingredient in that recipe? That's not how we do it. And finally, my mother was like, I don't know what to do. She was like, her hair was standing. I was like, everyone's calling <laughs> complaining. And I said, just tell them, tell them either they can call me or they can write their own cookbook. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Traditionally in Syria, they used Heinz ketchup actually, yeah. because that was what right. the Ottomans exactly. were using. The Ottomans used well, Heinz. it's the best one, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's the only one. The Ottomans used Heinz, but the Greeks used Hunts, which is kind of, the, that's where the, really the conflict. Yeah. You know, like Coke, you know. Pepsi, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, Hunts is garbage. I do all ketchup is garbage. I love, so that's, that's I just love to show you the different there. use, how people became creative and then passed it down, you know? And so then of course, next generations were like, well, that's how my mother did it. <laughs> that must have right? been how it's always been done. Yeah. right? <laughs> but that's interesting though. So there's people that are, that are our age, let's say Dan and I are, are in our late thirties where they're probably when they are in, encountering, let's call it a more, and, and for people that are listening to the audio version of this, I'm doing air quotes, authentic version of that dish. They'll, they would be like, no, this isn't how it's done because my, my mother or my grandmother makes this this way. And it's like this very American Americanized version of it. Um, it's like people who cook with like Coca-Cola. I mean, like, you know, you make like sauces or barbecue. Right. Well, it's got like flavor. It's got sugar. It's got, you know, it's like. Right. And it was like, available and it was, and there. It was available. So it's like, yeah, maybe it's not traditional, but it works. Right. And it, it gives you those flavor points yeah. that, that you need in order to hit those. Uh, I love, yeah. I love Worcestershire sauce. We can get it here, but it's not easy to find. Um, and, That's and another I, thing you have to smuggle. No, smuggle no, I, I, just, I just have to look <laughs> around a little bit more, but you know, it's got, yeah. it's got uh, anchovy concentrate in it. Yeah. So sometimes people in the, right. in the Jewish world won't, but you know, um, but now we can get, ta that's, that's what's so funny to me too, is that since I was younger and also since I first started writing recipes and teaching and versus now I've seen how the availability, even in New York has changed so much. So yeah. it used to be, I could only find certain things if I went to a certain part of Brooklyn called Atlantic Avenue, where this place uh, that's still open is called Sahadi. And Sahadi's was, uh, they supplied all the great basic Middle Eastern uh, ingredients in bulk. And you can go and find all the, and I would come go with my ba a big backpack and a cart on the subway in New York. And I would go all the way there. And to me, I felt like I was taking a little trip, little travel trip somewhere. Um, and I would go and I would buy all these things. And then I'd take them back in my backpack and a cart uh, to the Upper West Side because you couldn't get that. Now... Then it went from there. And then also in the Syrian Jewish community, if I visited there, I would go and they have another area called King's Highway, um, which is um, where you have some grocers that are kosher, that are uh, maybe they were Syrian or Egyptian owned. And they had some ingredients there that are specific, like the tamarind. So I'd buy the special sauce that they would, the Syrians make, 
with tamarind and it has other ingredients in it. Um, and I would bring that back. What's awesome and now is? you can get in kosher markets, you can get a few little things um, that are not Ashkenazi. Are, are, like, are Americans um, opening up more to the different Sephardic and Mizrahi kitchens and kind of flavors? American Jews, I, I mean, specifically. Okay, so um, definitely the American Jews, for sure. I mean, they are probably the most aware of all these different communities and the foods, I would say, probably from traveling to Israel. Um, they've had gone to Israel and they've tasted the Yemenite cooking and the Iraqi cooking and the um, all the other foods that are associated, you know, with different Jewish communities in the Middle East. And so they're aware of those two. And then um, there's definitely a more, not just awareness, but interest in learning because they love the food so much. And so they want to introduce it or they just want to eat that way. You know, like the Mediterranean diet and way of eating has always been considered one of the healthiest. Yeah. And, you know, time and time again, they keep coming back after all these different diets. Every, you know, America, the U.S. is king with that. Right. It's like every few years, if not every year, there's the new diet fad. And then what always happens is you it's the new diet. And everyone's eating that, like keto or oh my whatever God. I, don't even, I can't even hear that word. My dad does keto. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus Christ. It's garbage. All right, listen. Did it just give you a reaction? Here's the, here's the deal. Two years this guy is on this keto thing. And the first, it worked? I, I didn't Did know what it was, okay? we come. And this is another thing. When you're in Israel for a long time, you, you, you like, you like, I don't know, land in America for these visits. And it's like this window. You get a window of what America's like, but you're seeing it every like once a year. So you, you're not really up on things. So I had no idea what keto was. And I land in America. Oh, people do it here though. But I didn't, I don't know that. I'm not in your, you know, I mean, now I am, but I, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I don't associate with keto people. I don't like keto. So I showed up and I'm like, you're going to eat the, we're going to go out for pizza. He's like, no. I can't do that. I was like, what do you mean you can't do that? You love pizza. He's like, no, there's this keto thing. I'm doing I don't keto. love pizza anymore. <laughs> I don't love it anymore. I'm doing keto. Um, but that's, is it still going on? Are people still ketoing and vast numbers? Yeah, but you know, since COVID, I don't know. Maybe now they call it the COVID diet. I have no idea. <laughs> I just keep diet. telling people, like, Everything. I don't, so I, I can't do. keep up with that. I usually, but I, I have taught classes called the Mediterranean way mm. or the Mediterranean diet because and I, and I start my class with all this, uh, all these articles, you know, up to date articles on the Mediterranean diet, because what happens is they um, keep doing with all the new diets that come up, they keep going back to studying the Mediterranean way of eating and finding that it still holds up. Yeah, it absolutely. still holds up as one of the best ways, healthiest ways to eat. Um, so anyway, so I just... Uh, I, I, I try to, that's more my way of eating. Um, and I just tell people, if you're not sure, then just, I think, moderation, moderation, moderation. Because what happens is every time you think one particular ingredient or dish is super healthy and the best for you, if you get crazy and that's all you eat, then you're going to find that somehow it goes from being healthy to not so healthy. <laughs> And yeah, you know, it's because a, it's too much. It's like it has too much of something else, and then you're not eating. And right. every time, there's no magic, nope. you know, ingredient that's gonna. So just balance it. If you're not sure, then just don't eat too much of this. Don't eat too much of that. Just a little, you know, and balance and moderation. Balance. Absolutely. <laughs> what What are the more in, in your when you teach cooking classes and and from your cookbooks and from what you know? What are the? I'm, I'm curious which recipes 
um, and maybe you can point to, I, I know you deal with all different kinds of Mizrahi and Sephardi and, mm-hmm. and um, non-Ashkenazi foods. Um, so wh- which communities, let's call it palate, have you found to be, have you found most people like the best? And then maybe which kind of specific dishes, I'm curious, people who are not from that community like the best? Like what's been the biggest hit like in America? Um, you're saying in general, not just yeah. Jewish? Oh, uh, Jewish. I mean, you know, like what? Oh, in Jewish? So in the Jewish world, I would say still, and I would say also in the greater American general population, I think I still feel that what people know or think of when they think of Middle Eastern tends to be, and they don't realize this, but it tends to be Levantine cooking, which is some of the Syrian, Lebanese, a lot of Lebanese, I would say, and Lebanese and Syrian have very, very more similar than different. And it makes sense because a lot of the food that was introduced initially to the United States uh, in the Middle East was coming from the Lebanese. The Lebanese were the ones, you know, like you have different immigrant groups and you're like, why are they in this kind of business? And why are those doing that? And it it maybe it just had to do with the first ones that came that was an easy business for them to start. So they're like, okay, I'm going to do open up, uh, you know, um, so the Lebanese opened up like these import food import shops. And so, of course, they were importing these things from Lebanon and the Middle East. So uh, it's, it's from their more from their cuisine, their culture, their community, and their perspective. So that was the introduction to the Americans who were first learning about Middle Eastern food was coming from the Lebanese. So that would be like the hummus, the um, the falafel, the the little salads, what we call the maza, you know, yeah. the little plates and tastes and things like that. So that's more Levantine in terms of types of dishes and the way it's served. Um, so I would say that even now, uh, while people are have a bigger range, um, I'm like I'm trying to introduce cl- uh, classes all the time to some places that I'm doing uh, working for. And so I'll suggest like I, I suggested a soup. I taught a lesson on called Kibbe Hamda. Kibbe Hamda is a very popular Syrian soup where you have little stuffed meatballs. It's a meatball stuffed in a bulgur shell. And then you cook it in a lemony broth with lots of vegetables. And then you put a whole squash in the middle, like a yellow squash or zucchini in the center and you cook it and you present it that way. So huh. it's very pretty and it's very lemony and tart, which the Syrians absolutely love. What's and it's called? Mint and it has mint. all these things in it. And, uh, and it, it, the class ran, you know, I had a, I had a pretty good number of people um, coming, but um, I also see classes that are being offered that are Italian cooking and the Italian recipes uh, lessons, they're selling out. They're selling out because I think Americans are much more um, still more familiar with Italian cooking, um, which by the way, especially if you go to Southern Italy, like Sicily, you have a lot of Arabic influence in that region of Italy. So, and so sometimes I feel like if I can just get people to the table, if I could just get them in the class and they just taste it, you're going to be converted and you'll say, Oh, I want to learn this. And this is amazing, but they're not, they're still not familiar. It's still foreign. Is that disappointing to you? It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten better. I have to say it's gotten better because now people do understand that there's more than just 
the hummus, you know, the chickpea spread and not everyone necessarily was doing it. And that's all they do. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I try when I give my classes to, depending on where I'm like this one place where I would teach, I have, it's an hour and a half. So I have a 15 minutes at the beginning to do a slideshow presentation and that I prepare on the origins and the history of this one dish, uh, whether the name of it linguistically, where it came from, what region and so on. And I try to familiarize and give a familiarize and give a context to the dish. So before we just launch in with the ingredients in the kitchen and then they're gone, you know, like, let's try to understand a little bit. I show a map. I do all these things because I want, I want, that's how I approach um, whenever I'm writing about a dish or learning a new dish or writing about a new recipe. Okay. Cause I have that visual background and I'm very visual, like, okay, where, where are we talking about here? You know, like what country and why in this country or why does everyone attribute this dish to this country? Um, so give us some examples. Let's see. Can you give yeah. us some examples? So, well, one um, dish that I was doing for uh, a woman came to me actually. And also because I, I write and preserve, I write recipes. I try to write recipes down and develop recipes in order to preserve them. Mm. Um, a woman wrote to me and she said, my background is, comes from, um, Turkey or Turk, was she Turk? No, Greek. She was Greek, uh, Sephardic, uh, from Greece. And, um, the recipe that I have from my grandmother for borekas, she said it, my grandmother made the most amazing, amazing borekas, but I can't re redo it. Like we're all in my family. We all tried. She wrote it down. We have notes she took, but it's just, it's not working out. Do, if you can do something with this. And she kind of sent me a, a scan of the, of the recipe. And she said, no pressure, but if you can work it out, if you think that you can uh, do make a recipe that works, I'll hire you to teach the whole family on zoom, Wow, <laughs> which is what I did over, awesome. you know, during the height of the quarantine. So I was like, okay, I'm up for the challenge. Give me a little time. <laughs> So I asked her about the recipe and what were her issues with it, because I want to understand what was the problem. And she said, I don't know. It was just too dry. It was this and that and the other. So eventually I sat down, I did research on it because I didn't grow up with uh, breakas like the Sephardic culture did. I mean, definitely we in the Syrians would do things with uh, like a phyllo dough type of pastry that we would stuff with either uh, spinach or cheese or meat or vegetables or whatever. But when I don't feel, I feel like when you talk to a Syrian, at least in the Syrian Jewish community here, the first pastries that would come to mind that people say, oh, I love, I miss, they're so special, not enough people make it anymore, would be sambusak, or which is a, a stuffed buttery pastry with cheese, or um, the kibbeh, the kibbeh nabasiya style with the bulgari thing, That's right? That's fried. Um, but to, if you speak to the Sephardim that are coming from Turkey and Greece, Borekas is like King. up there. It's right? so good. <laughs> so I said, okay. And I eventually worked out a recipe. And then a few months later, I wrote, or like a month or two later, I wrote back to her and I said, okay, I think I'm ready. Like, if you want to get your crew together. And she did. <laughs> we got like 10 people from Israel, parts of the US, New York, everywhere. We found a time and I did this lesson for them online. But then when I taught the, that's when I said, okay, now that I know this dish, I'm going to offer it um, 
through this other organization that does all kinds of cooking classes for all over the world, right? So everything. So I'm trying to offer all the, the Sephardic, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean type of things that they don't have. So I offered this thing and I learned, and I said, okay, I wanna learn about the Boreka. I wanna learn about why it's called Boreka and where it's coming from. And then I started to look at the region because of course in Turkey, they have the Borek, right? Yeah. And obviously it's the same word, it's same concept. Um, but then I was thinking, but where, how did it become such a, why in the Jewish world coming from Turkey and Greece, is it so important to them that they still do it here in the United States? Um, where does the word then, come from? And it's different. Well, um, it's a kind of uh, pastry that I, I read that was basically something that um, was brought over by Turk, Turkic, like before not necessarily just Turkish, like Turkic coming from Asia and Mongolia and nomads, nomads that were preparing things um, on an open flame. Mm -hmm. And there was this first most rudimentary type of pastry that was uh, basically just uh, a dough um, where they started to make a dough and then they would use herbs that were natural to their environment and they had cows or cattle. And so they were able to milk them and use, make a dairy products with it. So that's when they started just kind of layering things. It was like this concept of layering uh, pastries to make this uh, pastry. Um, so that's where it started going back way back in time. Um, and, but, it, but it kept moving back and forth east to west and eventually made it into the uh, Ottoman Empire. And so the sultans, Sultan who was very interested in promoting very high-end cooking and had his kitchens that focused on very specific things. Like he had his confection kitchen and he had his halva kitchen and he had his uh, um, kitchen for uh, rice. You know, it's like each one was very specific. Um, and so they people, chefs and cooks started to develop and make it much more refined. And that's where you start to have this pastry that's a stuffed, folded, stuffed kind of pastry. Um, and in Iran, which also influence, influences a lot of Turkish cooking, they still have this thin dough they call yufka. And in Turkey, I think they call it a similar, or if not the same word, um, which is like phyllo. But again, in the U.S., because we have been introduced to this dough through the Greek immigrants, mm. it tends to we tend to use phyllo for everything. Um, whereas if you go to other parts of the Middle East, they have the concept of a thin dough, but it's called something else and it has a slightly different quality. Maybe it's fried instead of baked. Um, it has more leathery consistency, like the Moroccans and North Africans also use something and they make their cigar type thing, or they put in a little triangle and they fry it, you know, but then what's interesting is this Sephardic one is more like a pastry that's soft. It's not crispy, like the same one. It's more of a pastry dough, mm. but made with an oil base, which is interesting to me mm. because to me, that's often one way I think is a clue that something is coming from a Jewish branch. What do you, what do you mean? Because of the use of oil over butter. Oh, to keep it. Because oh. Uh, oh. sometimes when I'm looking at a recipe and I'm trying to understand its origins, uh, I look not only at the name of something, but I also look at the ingredients and the technique. 
And so what you have is uh, Jews coming, fleeing the inquisitions on the Iber- from the Iberian Peninsula, right? Mm-hmm. Who of uh, Spain, Portugal, mainly today. And so they're the, the original Sephardim, right? Sephardim, Spain, coming from there and end up settling in parts of the Mediterranean, right? That's where they tended to go initially because it was, uh, they were able to live there. It was, they were more welcoming and so on. So of course they bring with them their, their cultures and their rituals and their recipes and their techniques with them. Um, but in Spain, in especially Southern Spain, where a lot of the Jews were living, um, they already had this dish, this empanada type of pastry, right? Which is a semicircle pastry. It might've been bigger than what the way we make the uh, pastry today, but it was a half moon shaped stuff, stuffed dough pastry. Yeah. So what you have is um, something that uh, they brought this uh, dish with them and then they, um, they um, when they settled in parts of Turkey, then they it's like the two and parts of even southern Italy, they, the two recipes came together. And so the Jews started to prepare the borekas, but with an empanada type of dough and folding it in a half moon type of shape. You, you want to get that? You want to get that real quick just because it's popping up. In yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, I know. So, I just wanted to. No worries. I'm going to turn it off. I don't it's not my phone. It's uh <laughs> It's random phones didn't going know, off. I didn't know it was on. Anyway, no, no so worries. that's how they. Um, I like that kind of how they the did it. I like that kind of the that empanada type dough. The marrying of the it, two um, it, types it, of dishes, and then it becomes Sephardic, right? Of course, right. they're learning from two different communities, and then they're bringing it together, and then they continue it as they move to other communities um, along the way. It's it's interesting so, when when we're talking about burekas, obviously, because in Israel it's it's, it's so ubiquitous. The literally every corner, everywhere is, you is go, burekas. there are burekas, and and some of them are better than others, and some of them are more authentic. Some than of others, them are garbage. Some of them are garbage. <laughs> uh, but you definitely have these like they're they're different shapes. So in Israel, the most common ones are you're going to have this this triangle that has sesame seeds on it that's filled with some sort of a very salty sort of probably Bulgarianish type cheese. Uh, and then what you just described, the half moon, almost empanada one, they, we have that. That's my favorite one. And and I never thought of it that that was like an empanada and maybe that's where the origins of that shape. And the dough is very different. It's not but a it's, flaky It's a very dough. different dough. I like that one the best. Uh, my favorite is is if you go, and we should do this sometime, you go to the Shuk and Ramle. There's a guy there. They come from Istanbul and they sell these these massive, I, I don't know the how. Snake they, ones. The snake right. ones. They're like just this roll that's very, very big. Uh, and... The same cart that sells this also serves the um, the iron, the like the the Iranian uh, or Turkish. It's like a dairy drink that has mint and garlic. Oh, like and, a yogurt drink. Yeah, it's like a yogurt drink. Yeah, um, and you, I gotta, you gotta go there sometimes. Delicious. Check it out. We got a few. We got a few comments and questions here from some of our uh, audience here. So uh, Gershon, who's joining us, uh, says the best Syrian dish is lahmacun. Which is also uh, which yeah. is also one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah, I should have said that. Lachmajin is a meat definitely. on dough. Meat on dough is literally what it's like it a, means. It's like a meat, right? Meat exactly, pizza. Yeah, meat it means pizza. meat on dough. So we we make that a lot here, actually, in my house. Um, <laughs> you we, do? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, my wife makes a great pizza dough, and then sometimes we'll take that and I'll and I'll. Um, I like to cook out of. Um, I have a few of uh, Otto Lange's cookbooks that I like to use, and. Um, 
there's a traditional one called Jerusalem, which is more traditional recipes. Most of his yes. recipes are kind of fusion. And, and so he's got a great lachmaju. And then I'll kind of make like um, kind of like a salsa. Maybe I'll call it more of a Mediterranean parsley-based salsa that I'll kind of top on it. And that's kind of my own touch. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun with that. So so that's definitely an awesome dish. And then our friend uh, Yara has a couple questions for you. If you have a restaurant of your own or how can she visit you and eat your awesome food? <laughs> uh, well, um, I do not have a restaurant. No, I never went into the restaurant business. That's a good idea. Uh, so <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it. Um, but uh, my food, there are a few ways. Either when I teach the the, the lessons, I try to teach the, those particular dishes, the Syrian dishes and all the other Middle Eastern dishes that I love to cook and I've worked on and written about. Um, and so people can learn it on their own by following, you know, doing a, a virtual lesson with me if you're not in New York at the time. Um, and then hopefully one day when these cooking schools reopen, um, yeah. the cooking classes that I teach, we're doing, I have full classes that are just Syrian, just Egyptian, Moroccan, sometimes Mediterranean mix, sometimes, uh, North African of the Southern Mediterranean, you know, so I do try to do a whole mix of classes and that would be, and the other last ways, if I'm doing it home and I'm cooking and you're, and you're and here and when and I'm you're doing some kind of celebration party. Are there, are there Syrian well, Jewish restaurants in New York? Can people find this kind of food outside of homes? So, you know, it's funny, the Syrian Jews didn't really go, like if you go to the Syrian Jewish community, what you'll find, and there are others who like in, there's one community in, in Florida, there's also in Deal, New Jersey, where the later uh, generation started to move and live for full time. Um, a lot of times, I mean, you'll have maybe Syrians will own some kind of places, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily doing Syrian fully food. only Syrian food. So you might be disappointed if you go and it's like a mix of all kinds of dishes. You'll find the groceries where you'll go into a place mm. and now they have some stuff frozen, like the sambusak or lachambajin or um, the kibbeh in little bags and yeah. you can buy them in the freezer section. Uh, there are some a few caterers in the community um, in Brooklyn that do cater to big events that do like there's a place called Sauda. There are like some places that do the Syrian foods, especially those little pastry type yeah. things for big events. But the restaurants, it's tricky. They don't really have like Syrian Jewish kosher like it's time. and all the Syrian stuff. It's still very much in the home that yeah. those dishes that people don't know about. Yeah, Yara, you can when you, when you finally get to come visit Israel, um, we actually have a lot of kind of Syrian. I'll call them Syrian, Turkish, Iraqi, because it's it's very similar uh, cuisines and very similar palates. Um, I, I know in the Shuk in uh, Jerusalem, there's some fantastic restaurants doing that kind of cuisine. Um, so I'll be happy uh, to take you there if you ever get to come visit Israel. Um, and um, yeah, sorry, there's no restaurants in New York, but uh, if you if you make it here, there's some great restaurants to go uh, check out. I, I got to ask, out, out of uh, except for Syrian cuisine, okay? So when you started exploring other cuisines, and they're very different from each other, you know, we kind of, you know, people who aren't familiar with the cultures tend to lump it all into, you know, Sephardic cuisine or Mizrahi cuisine, but of course they're very very different. Which one um, are you attracted to the most? Which one kind of pulls you in the most? The and maybe think about the ones that are maybe like the most different from what you know that pulled you in the most and, and why. 
Wait, let me ask, you're asking me which cuisines? Yeah, like of the Sephardic and Mizrahi, different types of cuisines, and they're all very different from each other. Yeah. Um, Except for the Syrian one, which one do you connect to the most? I mean, Turkish, I think I understand very well because there is so much of an exchange historically, politically. There was just so much going back and forth. And I remember when I went to Turkey, if I saw the dish on a menu and it was in Turkish, I didn't know what it was. But as soon as I saw it in Arabic, I totally knew what it was. (laughs) Um, So, but so, and the concepts were very similar. Sometimes they did it a little bit differently, but I definitely understood the Turkish and I'm drawn to the greater Turkish cuisine because I think it's very, uh, it takes a lot of, or shares and takes, because there was a lot of sharing with the Syrian cooking, but on a, on a very high level and even more broadly. And also Turkey is interesting to me because you have the Eurasia from East to West because it's so big and it would, and because it was the center, you know, it, it was part, it was the main part of the Ottoman Empire. It was able to draw in from all parts anywhere. Mm. That's the advantage of being an, uh, an empire, right? To right. be able right, to right. draw in from all the different communities. But I do, I, I, I have to say, I really do. I mean, with each um, cuisine that I study and work in, there are parts that I absolutely love, like Moroccan, of course. Um, I didn't know. After Moroccan, I didn't know Algerian and Tunisian as well yeah. until I started writing about it um, when I put it, when I was developing my cookbook and I needed to find people from these different communities and, and gather recipes. Then I started learning more about Algerian dishes and what, you know, what kind of things they have there. Tunisian. What is an Algerian so, dish? I, I what, do. What are some of the highlights of Algerian too. cooking? <laughs> I'm actually not familiar with their kitchen. or maybe Algerian. Yeah. So. They have a lot, like one thing I love that um, I learned from this woman is a, a pepper, a red pepper. Well, it's a mixed pepper salad um, where you peel the peppers, right? Like bell peppers, roasted peppers. And it's a very simple salad with garlic and olive oil um, that they called uh, la cocha. But, you know, what's interesting is there are different names um, that she was calling it la cocha. Um this woman who's Algerian from Algeria now living in France. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was a very local name for it at the time when she was living there. Cause she's older. Um, then they, sometimes you'll see the name Mashwia, you know, mm-hmm. so like they're different names for different things, but I just love that dish. And then she also has a dish where, uh, sort of reminds me of the Syrians where this this technique of stuffing something within something. So like a meatball within a, another shell that has meat in it too. So it's like meat within a meatball. You have my attention. Um, so they would do these larger uh, patties and she would use beef or lamb, but I think it was beef actually, more beef and uh, spice with eggs and so on. And then um, she would fry it and then put it in a broth and stew it after she's fried it with with peas. And this was a Passover dish, actually. So she would fry it, but bread it not in breadcrumbs, but in matzo meal. Oh. Um, and so that was something that uh, I really liked uh, that was very different from the Syrian. Although you can sort of see, you know, this idea of a stew and something sort of it's like a couple, three dishes in one. You've got like a yeah. soupy component. You've got the vegetable and you've got the meat and you pair the meat part 
and then you cook it again, but it's in the stew with an, so it takes time. A lot of yeah. these things, that's the other thing that's hard sell. I find like on the one hand, people, young generations, they want to go back and learn a lot of these old dishes that they know their mother and their grandmother would make, um, or they want to rediscover, even if they didn't grow up with them. But it's hard to explain that a lot of what made them great is time. Yeah. yeah. You what know, made great is that it took chopping. seven hours. Yeah, you just have to sit there for eight hours yeah. and watch this. I mean, they had the time, but they were also willing to put in the time. So sure. it was kind of, you know, that's, that's the thing that I find also is hard about this kind of cooking is I try to find dishes and ways of, of shortcuts that will still also, um, preserve the recipe so you don't lose too much yeah in yeah, that, trying to cut corners I've, something but, i've been thinking about listening to you this whole time is just you have this this deep admiration and respect for the traditions and, and the cultural and, and 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 culinary traditions of all of the, the forebearers that, that came before you um and, and i think that that's something that today is lost on a lot of people in terms of just the ability to hand down recipes from generation to generation. I mean, you were mentioning before you got into this because you discovered, you know, that there was recipes that were written down. And I think of, you know, for, for example, I'll think of, of my wife who loves her mother's cooking, but her mother, you know, she didn't sit in the kitchen so much with her mother to learn what she, what she was cooking. So the things that are passed down from generation to, gener to generation are so much less. And, and then when you could say that, you know, it, what you were just talking about where it's, people don't have the time anymore to sit and, and, and make some of these recipes. You know, I, I fear that there's going to be a lot that's lost. And I wonder if it was, is that something that's avoidable? I don't think there's an easy, there are ways to do it that can make it easier. But I think that at some point you can't get around if you really want a recipe from someone and you, because you don't want to forget it and you want to be able to do it and then pass it on, you, you're not going to find a quick way of doing it if you're with and avoid spending the time on it. Like, I think um, I can understand if you, if you feel like I can't do all the recipes, but if you even have a few key recipes that are really important to you, then you have to make the time because you don't want to regret, you don't want to regret not knowing how to do it later. And um, the only way you're going to do it, is if you, well, ideally, I would say, learn from the person who you know it from, you know, who did it, like whether it's your mother, your grandfather, your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin. Sometimes there are people in the community that they can, especially if it's in your family and it's done the way you grew up with. Because again, uh, there's the community, but then there's also each family and people saying, well, that's not how my mother did it, you know? And so then people say, that's not the way because that's not how my mother did it or how my grandmother did it. She didn't use so, ketchup. <laughs> what? She didn't use ketchup. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and then the point is that that's true for anybody. So the point is, if you really feel that you want to remember and learn, uh, then you ideally should try to make sure that you, you make that time and that appointment and you go, if you can't, like not everyone can, not everyone can, <laughs> has that person that's still living, that made that dish, can still do it. 
um, that you can go visit. Like, you know, there's a lot of factors I totally understand because I've done it so many times that it's not easy work. I've also done it for other people. Like I've gone to their grandmothers and, and cooked because I wanted to learn the recipe from, for me to have it written down and used. And, um, and sometimes it's easier when it's not your own relative because they'll show you things and they'll, maybe there's a different way about them, uh, that's a little more relaxed when um, it's not family, you know, it's funny. Like I remember once many years ago, this woman hired me to, um, to t develop and write recipes for their families from Hungary and her grandmother, they had, they were really lucky. They had a huge book of handwritten, all the recipes her grandmother had written down in Hungarian for, and just kind of, they had it like they just had it, you know, in there, but so they could translate it because they knew Hungarian and they knew the recipes, but they need, they said, we just can't get it together in terms of writing it the correct way and, and how to do it professionally. And we're not agreeing. And then we get distracted. So can you just come to our house and we'll do the recipe? We'll do the dish and you'll write. You so chronic, I went there and after the first right? session, I felt like I was doing group therapy. <laughs> <laughs> all fighting and disagreeing and that's not how she did it no that's not and i was just saying okay guys listen all right i'm gonna step in here as mediator you know and and but that's part of it too because there's um there's so much it's emotion sure. also in the food right so uh you know and then people also leave things out whether on purpose or not you know so and i'm a little I know that. So when the way I approach it, you know, is like, so um, is there anything else that you want to add? And then if they say, no, 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 that's it. And, I'm, and especially the more comfortable I got with a range of different cuisines and dishes over many years, I would say, and not yeah. cumin. You wouldn't add cumin <laughs> to that? The passive aggressive suggestion. You talk like, oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, you add cumin to that, and I was just you, like, "Okay, just checking." You ask them questions. That you sound like my therapist. <laughs> okay, you have to, you have to settle a, a an argument my parents have had for years. Okay, okay. hummus uh -huh. with cumin or without, mixed in it, not not on top. Mixed oh, yeah. well, we'll see if Bob I and Shoshana like are do, listening here. <laughs> I like to do. Well, I'll do different ways. I like to put cumin on top. I don't mix it in. It's I still do more of a basic hummus with the ch dried chickpeas and soak them, and then I'll put it on top before I serve it. I don't mix it in. But are you saying in terms of tradition or in no, terms no, no, no? Just in, in terms of like the various recipes, the various traditions that you've seen, which one is oh, more correct? I well, I've not. You know, my grandmother, uh, who was born in Syria, to her hummus was just some, you know, chickpeas mashed with a fork and then she would squeeze some lemon on it and some salt oh. and she would eat it, you know, like that's the most basic yeah, yeah. hummus because it just means chickpeas, right? Sure. So that can be also a hummus. I mean, just to mash your chickpeas with a fork and it's, you know, basic it's a as it simple gets. Yeah, dish, yeah. little olive oil, little lemon juice or just lemon. And she loved lemon. So she didn't mind. It was really tart. Um, and then, you know, this whole addition of the trino, you know, the sesame paste and how the proportion of it, like to me, which I really like, but uh, to me, the proportion, the large percentage or proportion of the trina to chickpea is uh, to me a very Israeli way of doing oh, yeah? it, you know, okay. where it's very creamy and you have that, you know, that's that sesame paste flavor 
Um, you don't taste as much of the chickpea and it's very smooth and kind of thick. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's just to me, Oh, this is Israeli style. You know, are you any kinds of hummus? Do you find yourself deeply enraged when you see pumpkin spice chocolate hummus <laughs> oh, cho- at a grocery store? Oh, my God. What have Americans done to hummus? Can you please? like This is I something would, that I think Israelis and Jews and, and Arabs, Arabs, we, all can, we can all unite to take down this monstrosity refuse, that's happening in I America. I refuse to buy. If I buy hummus, which I'm not going to be too proud to admit i do buy hummus sometimes because we won't I can't always make it and so yeah i'll buy hummus you know from the store occasionally and i'll try to buy the most basic one that doesn't have anything but just the basic stuff in it but i you know when you were saying that i had this image of this one whole refrigerator section <laughs> in, a whole in ref- a market here there's that whole foods and yes. it's just hummus, like they, all hum- like shells and shells, like every hummus. brand, every they shape, every size. Hummus. And the one that they have is the chocolate one yes. that you mentioned. And I just stood there and going, how is that? It doesn't even have a chickpea in there. I'm appalled. <laughs> Which I'm is like, what like, hummus d- means. Jennifer, you know, it doesn't you even d- have a chickpea. You don't understand. I just heard of this like kind of just. You, you thought you were joking. Mentioned. No, I, 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 know I was being serious. I didn't know the scale and the scope of, 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 the, of the problem. And Dan and you were saying, I'm, I'm appalled. I'm, you should be. It's a travesty. There's a whole refrigerator There's filled dessert with hummus. It's tra- dessert. It's, it's, it's but you all. know, but I think it's an interesting <laughs> commentary. Let's just say that I've, I still feel that in every generation with every community, country, time period, over period of time, you will find your chocolate hummus somewhere. Like that dish that at the time was the chocolate hummus. Like the way people would look and say, lose it. You can't do, that is not, no, that is not according to the rules, that it's not acceptable, that's not how it's done. And I will say too, Americans are much more, however you want to say it, they're much more relaxed about things. Like, well, just do it. Like, what's the big deal? They're not as Right? They're not as yeah, yeah. tightly, yeah. you know, connected. It's not even they're not connected. They're not. It's not theirs. Held yeah. down. They're not. Cha- they don't feel chained down sure. to all the old traditions necessarily. They're like, well, if I want to do it, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. And what's yeah. the problem? Yeah. And, and and if you, if you don't like it, you don't the, have to eat it. I'll eat it. Yeah, I used to. I used if to it watch a good, lot who of. Cares? Um, it's a travesty. I used, I used to watch a lot of Chopped. You know, the, the cooking show Chopped. Oh yeah, yeah. And. Um, it, it you know you mentioned that it whenever they had someone from a kind of ethnicity on the show you know uh, Mexican Korean Japanese Not whatever white, like any other. No, but someone from a, even like French people or German people. Whenever okay. you had someone from from not America and who wasn't from an ethnic group in America, and then they would have an, an ingredients from that country or a theme from that country, you would see that oftentimes the people from that ethnicity are like stuck to what is traditional. Yeah. And then they lose because it's all about creativity. <laughs> and, and, and no, like they, they create like a really authentic, you know, whatever it is. And, the, and but they're not being creative because it shows all how do you take four ingredients and, and be creative. And then right. it's like, you know, the, you know, if it's Mexican cooking, it's like the Japanese guy or like the, you know, the European person who's like, oh, I took these Mexican ingredients and I made something really creative. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, you got the idea of, and that's kind of like what, you know, fusion cooking. And, and that's kind of like the beauty yeah. of what it is today. You take that the essence but you you recreate it into something like very modern 
with a twist or, or like, um, you know, that reminds you of, but it's something you can do quickly. It's something you can do gourmet. You know, you were saying how a lot of these searing dishes don't really translate to restaurant food because they take hours and hours to make. And, And I think that's like, I don't know, maybe that's something we haven't really had here in, in Israel at least. And in kind of these kitchens is like, how do you take the essence of these foods and turn it into something quick and modern and gourmet that you could serve, you could make in 10 minutes and serve at a restaurant, you know? And, and, and should you, and should you, that's a different kind of question, but I'm always fascinated with that kind of stuff. And I guess when you're like really deep in that culture of that ethnicity, whatever it is, you have a hard time seeing outside of it and being like, okay, how do I take this mm-hmm. inspiration and then come back and, and, and make this dish, you know, this inspired dish. Yeah. Like an inside out. Yeah. Kippah. Whatever. whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or parekas or something like that. Well, I, I, I think it's okay to, to respect and enjoy both at the same time and recognize they're just two very different approaches, sure. you know, like, you can have, I love, like, for example, the other day we ordered in, we ordered from an Asian type of restaurant. It's not a typical, like, Asian restaurant, but it, they had one of the things that was on the menu was something with pastrami on it. <laughs> so how, and it was really good. <laughs> was it a pastrami egg roll? It was, was really it? good. Was so it? you can't get more New York than that. The Chinese right. with the pastrami, you know, especially the Jewish and the, and yeah. the Asian, like, this this kind of funny. Only if uh, you served it on Christmas. It's a Christmas day special. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and I think, I think there is something definitely in the American culture um, that makes it easier for us tradition in a way to experiment and not feel like, okay, if it works, it works. It doesn't. Okay. So it didn't work. You know, it's like just yeah. throwing it and see what sticks kind of thing. Sure. And I, I do see, I have seen, other, um, you know, cuisines, people from other countries where you don't see as much, like they're, they're now like in France, I've seen a lot more creativity, but for a long time when I would go there, I would, I would see very separate and the food is amazing there. Do you go, but do you also go to France sometimes often? I was like, oh my God, like why, why can't they just mix this? Like, what is the big deal? But then we get very mad, you know, like, you, no, you can't, that's not how you eat it. That's not how you. Do you go to so, France a lot? I, I do because my husband's French, so I, I go to France uh, every summer, except for last summer because we couldn't go. But um, and actually going to France has given me a lot of uh, experience in eating North African cooking that I hadn't had much of growing up here in the States because yeah. you have so many uh, people there from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. In, like especially in the Jewish community, and, yeah. Yeah. So I would eat a lot more. I would, that's what actually, when I would go to France, I would see, I would seek out all the Moroccan restaurants, Lebanese, you know, that's what I would look for when I was there. So I want to make sure that we touch on something before we, we begin to wrap, uh, wrap up here. And and that is of of course, uh, Pesach, Uh, you wrote a, a book, you know, about Pesach, uh, too good to pass over. And Dan doesn't know this about me, but Passover is, and this is, this. I'm saying this deliberately because maybe the two of you can turn me around. I don't like Pesach. Get out of here. I, I don't. I don't like Pesach. And I think that it has to do with the food that I grew up on uh, over Pesach being being gross. Uh, Nancy, I'm sorry. Sorry. He didn't mean, he didn't mean it. He sorry. didn't mean it. Except I, <laughs> except I did. Sorry, Mom. Uh, and, and just... The amount of restrictions and, and, and 
just an overall feeling that I would have normally. Yeah, you don't like restrictions. I don't. I don't you like really restrictions. don't. I kind of like like Jennifer said about the America. Like, just let me do my thing. No, but like, like the second anyone comes to you with like a restriction, you're like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> it's because he, it's he because came of, with me to work out. I don't out. want to be tied down. He right? came with lazy. me to work out down. at CrossFit, and he's like, I don't like being told what to do. I was like, You're in a gym <laughs> with a coach. They're, it's like there's a workout. He's like, I don't. Like I being keep. Told what I'm you. still going though. <laughs> Good for you. But no, he's like the second the coach is like do this, he's like, No, I'm doing my own thing. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still going. I was mad about okay, it. Okay, well, how do I, how do I begin to like Pesach? And well, what and, don't you like about Pesach? Yeah, is it well? First of all, are you talking strictly about the food you can and can't eat, or are you no. talking about the whole everything that goes with it—the seder, the story, the whole sitting down and telling the story, and the symbolic plate, and like what part of it you don't like, or is it the whole thing? I have to be Which careful is, about how I word this because I have yes, the tendency. Careful. To put my, I have the tendency <laughs> to put my foot in my mouth sometimes, and I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> I, if I was being, if I, if I'm being completely honest, there's a lot of everything that I enjoy. I can see the value in a lot of the different, the, the different mm-hmm. traditions and customs that we do. You know, for example, the Seder, I, I deeply appreciate, but I also see that there's other stuff that Pesach touches at, which to me, um, kind of exposes or, or, or showcases some of the rifts that we have in, in the, in the Jewish people that I find to be completely trivial like in my, so for example I mean, this is a good opportunity to talk about it because here we are we're talking about Pesach and we're talking about Sephardic and Mizrahi traditions the entire Kitniot non-Kitniot argument to me is completely and totally bullshit there's no argument there's no I don't think there's an argument either but you'll find people who will say no I can't eat this I can't eat okay. that it's like so let them set it so let them but the fact is is like that's a because we live in Israel and you yeah. can't escape it it's in my face at all times got it so, so it, in my house you're welcome to eat here we eat Kitniot we kidney out too, and I think that most people in Israel do. Yeah, uh, in America, that's that's probably the opposite. It's probably that most people do not, um, and 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 you know maybe that's challenging. You know, the opposite direction. I find that it's difficult for me to cook. Also, in my house, I don't like that. My I think that what I'm getting at here is that if it was if it was me living alone by myself, I'm I'm much more secular, let's say, than than my wife and than Dan. Um, I probably just wouldn't do it. Um, I because because I you know believe in shalom bayit. We're we're cleaning my house and we change all the dishes and we change. You know, I think it's we, a great tradition. It. It's a know. nice tradition. I, I do like it and I would continue it for my children. Um, but it, uh, it 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 at times comes to me to be to be a little bit difficult to wrap my head around. Um, that being said, I think food is a big part of it, and that is you know we because we're not trying too hard in my house we don't set out to make better dishes and and i think that you've mm-hmm. uh that you found a good way to to show people you know it's not just that dishes that can be special for pesach it's that pesach dishes can be special throughout the year that's a good way to yeah, put well, it well i I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of things in there. Of course, there's a lot of things. <laughs> that that's what I do. As your I therapist, have, Jennifer, I have, I have, I have one rant every show. Yeah. That was it. Every every and, show, he's got this like. Don't worry, I've heard I've heard this story dump. many times. So, <laughs> yes, I think um, what was interesting when I was collecting information for this book, the Passover cookbook. Um, and I interviewed over 100 people from different communities. So it's like 23 communities in uh, what I call the non-Ashkenazic world or the Middle East, Mediterranean, North Africa, and Central Asia. And I interviewed people. And the first thing I did was, all right, tell me what, and, and they were all different ages. Um, and they were also some people when I could 
they had grown up or were at least born in one of these countries. And um, sometimes they were from that background, like Persian, but they grew up in LA, but they had those traditions. And I tried to have just at least a balance because I wanted to show if there was a difference in the memories and the traditions, even within that same community. So definitely when it comes to the American tradition of um, kidney oat, to kidney oat or not kidney oat, as we know, most are in the US are Ashkenaz. So even if, and this is a part with that I would sometimes get a little frustrated by, but my side that understands the value of keeping a tradition and everybody has their own way of like, okay, that's just, all right, I don't follow anything else, but it's just that one thing I do and I just can't, yeah. I have to, like, I can't, and I'm kind of, and then I realized I'm kind of like that too. You know, like I don't eat, I don't eat pork, but I wouldn't say I keep kosher, but I, I made a decision a long time ago that that's just not one thing I'm going to eat. And I couldn't even really describe why. And now I understand, actually after doing the Passover cookbook, I have a good answer for people because I understand why I don't eat pork. Um, but, and I'll get to in a second, but in terms of the kidneyot, I think it's similar, is that all the Ashkenazim, they, they, their mother, their father, their grandmother, they didn't eat rice, they don't eat beans, so they're just going to continue. No, nope, that was passed over to me, that's how it's done, I'm not going to do it. Even if they don't do anything kosher the whole rest of the year, they're the most secular, yeah. nothing, okay? Um I just want to I just want to explain sorry sorry Jennifer I just want to explain to some of our listeners who are not oh, familiar oh, what with it this. Is, right? Yeah so so uh, on Passover for the whole week of Passover we don't eat um bread okay we don't eat leavened uh wheat products so so bread that's that's risen so we eat this basically matzah which is kind of like a cracker type thing and there's I want to get into that also later on what what the different kinds of matzahs are because Americans and, and Israelis are frankly used to one, maybe two kinds of matzahs, but there's different. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's basically it. And then anything with like flour, anything with that could have risen, we're not supposed to eat. And that's kind of the original rule. That's been expanded in Ashkenazi Jewish communities to include also rice and legumes and derivatives of things like that. Called a legume. Legumes. Legume. Yeah. Legumes. Legumes. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> Legumes. It's a legume. No, it's not a legume. Legumes. Legumes. <laughs> so, so there's a split. Kidney oat. Just use the word kidney, kidney oat. So Everybody that's what we call that. kidney oat. And Sephardi, Sephardim and most Israelis, because because Israel's mostly Sephardic or secular, um, eat. And then in America, which is mostly Ashkenazi, and then we, hardcore Ashkenazim do not eat. So just so if you're if you're not Jewish and you're not deeply familiar with these, that's just kind of what we're talking about here. So. Yes. So, so what the reason, and, and this is, again, this is another thing that I, because I had to, when I was putting the book together, of course, I would ask, okay, one of the things I would ask is, what do you remember? What are the traditions? What did you eat? And then I would also say, okay, in your family and in your community, in your family, did you eat kidney or did you eat rice or legumes or beans or anything of that nature? And what was interesting to me is, and this is in the uh, the non-Ashkenazi world. So this is the world that everyone assumes all eat kidney oat. I found the world it's not where true. food tastes better. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but I found it's not true that while they're more likely to, and maybe the ma- maybe the majority of them do to some extent eat rice. Let's say there are those that don't. Like when I spoke to one guy, and it can also vary 
within that same community. Sure. So, um, but you'll see a general uh, sort of a general sort of leaning towards something or another. So, for example, uh, when I talked to one guy who's Moroccan, I said, "Did you eat rice?" He looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, "Yeah, we they don't, don't eat rice. The Moroccans don't." So we rice. don't eat rice. Yeah. He said, "The Tunisians they eat rice. Go ask the Tunisians, right?" And so what's interesting to me, what I learned even in doing my own research was that I assumed everybody, because the way, for me in Passover, we always eat rice. So whenever I would tell someone, you know, when it was getting close to Passover and I was talking to someone who's Jewish and we were getting ready for Passover, um, the, the, the answer, the thing, the statement I always heard from people, my friends who are Jewish, but not from Middle East Mediterranean, they would say, you're so lucky you can eat rice. As if, as if, you don't have to, you don't suffer at all. You yeah, don't right. suffer during Passover because you've got it made. You can eat rice. And so I used to always think like, yeah, but I don't understand why you can't. Like, I don't understand why you can't. I do because the tradition right, has been right. there for so long. And it was established a while back in those communities by the rabbis. I, I think rabbis that- decided in those communities and it was a very different time. Yeah, I mean, it had to do with the grain. the The bags often were grain bags, or you know, they were next to each other, so they could have mixed in, and so it was like taking precautions. I think, I think, I think that, and also diet. I think that what you just said, Jennifer and Dan, what you what you just added upon that, actually, if I want to go back to what I said earlier, that that probably describes to me my biggest issue with Pesach, which is that there seems to be a great amount of people that threat. And you mentioned this before that at any other day they don't care, and all of a sudden they're like. The, the most stringent. stringent that they can be about yes, something. It's and, and it's like, let's throw all of our th- all of our free agency and pragmatism out the window. It's a deep tradition. But, but they don't know why they're keeping the and, tradition. And I don't have a problem with people that understand why. Because it's the same as anything else. It's the same as anything in politics. It's the same the as anything in The deepest traditions are the ones that you don't understand think about. Understand what you're... Why? Be, no, but you know because you're an educated person. And you know, Jennifer, okay. because you're involved, why we do these things. There are people that, I, that are... On any other facet of their life, very, very, let's call them, you know, uh, pluralistic. Uh, or, but but or that shows you how deep of a tradition. It I is. know. I yeah. I, I'm, well, like I, I, I understand. Saying. I believe me. I understand. I personally don't get it because it's it. I, it, think, I think you're being too cerebral about it. Perhaps. And you're very I mean, cerebral. I guess person. what I'm saying to you, Benny, is I I totally get you. Like I understand. I'm cooking for these people. They're hiring me <laughs> to come. Seriously, I'm standing there. I'm trying to think of a menu for, you know, some of my clients to cook their seders for them for like 30, 40 people. And of course, I'm preparing things that I don't eat. I didn't grow up with, but I'm making for them. And then they always say, I want to do something different uh, this year. So I want to add a little something. But then, And in the end, we always end up with the same menu because I tell them, but you won't eat all these things. So we can't, like, I, I would love to do a rice dish for you, but you refuse to eat the rice. So, oh, no, no, we can't eat the so rice. No, I'll, we can't be. I'll give you- so, it, so I don't know what to say, except that I do say I understand when it comes to um, tradition. And sometimes you have that one thing you're like, even if, like, I try to see in their way, like I do with what I was saying, I don't keep kosher, Right. Um, even though many of my clients, most of my clients do. So I have to, I cook for them kosher. My recipes are innately kosher. That's the world I'm moving in, but at home, I don't necessarily keep kosher, but there's one thing that I just decided for my own personal self. I'm just not going to eat pork. I don't go crazy. If, if someone wants to eat it, 
at the same time, I don't care. I don't care what anyone else does. I've even gone to restaurants where then I realized there's a pork thing on my plate. I'm like, oh, I just pull it out. Like, I don't get great. But in my mind, I've just kind of decided I'm not going to. And I know that um, it's sort of similar to other people saying, okay, I don't do anything else all year, but I never ate rice for Passover. And so to me, Passover, yeah. meaning to them, is not Passover if I'm eating rice. Like suddenly it's just not Passover. Anymore. So I, I, it, so it, it reminds me actually, it, just an example of, it, of what I was saying and, and, and what you just said about the pork, it, it, it reminds me of my wife and I went to a restaurant once during Pesach with my father and his girlfriend here in Israel. And it was a non-kosher restaurant called Manta Ray, uh, which is a terrific restaurant. Oh, super non-kosher. Super non-kosher. And it was during Pesach, and my, and we were there. We were just like, you know, they serve bread there in Pesach because it's a non-kosher restaurant. <laughs> they serve lobsters and shrimp and whatnot. And my dad's in the restaurant, and they eat shrimp and everything. So, like, we had this whole, you know, spread of seafood, and my dad's like, but we need matzah. <laughs> But my wife looks at the situation like, Ron, my dad's name is Ron. What, what do you mean matzah? He's like, I'm not going to eat bread. Like, but you're eating lobster. It's like, but yeah, but that's lobster. This is Pesach. I can't eat bread. And but you know what? That's it. Yeah, you know what happened there? I'll tell you what happened there. It was a little Jewish guilt. Like, yep, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Then even if he's not going to do anything else, he's going to be in this restaurant. That's the thing about tradition. And that's a human reaction. It's like, Oh, but no, I, I mean, of course I'm going to have, ma- I, I have to at least recognize that it's Passover and yeah. matzah is, there's nothing more that says Passover more than matzah, you know, I mean, Absolutely. that is, and it's probably the most Jewish thing you can have is matzah. And that they have matzah at Mantaray in Tel Aviv is interesting. I, that's a whole fascinating thing in itself that a place that's serving the trafiest trafes of food is going to. You know, well, month, for but, like people like his dad, who at that moment yeah. have a have a sudden realization and panic sure. attack, and they're like, "Here it is. Here's the matzah. Don't worry." Look, it's a three thousand year old tradition, and and yeah. you know what I you know what I tell people like you when you try to get in, and I say, you know what, don't think you can out cerebral a three thousand year old tradition that's so ingrained in our DNA as Jews. These 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 traditions run deeper than what you can you know think you can you know think about and oh it doesn't make sense to me or it's not consistent with my belief value no it's a three thousand year old tradition and that's why consistently you know more um israeli jews say they and and american jews it's it's one of the most kept traditions you know out out of everything even people don't do anything else the rest of the year um and, and i think you know good Good, yeah, good, good. For, good for them. You know, um, I personally wish more people would keep more traditions, but but it shows you. It shows you the depth of that tradition. Um, I, I got to ask, what what are you? Um, if you can build us a really good um, Passover menu, um, and I'll give you a second to think about this because I want to say something else right before. But if you can build us a really good Passover menu, or give us a couple of, of of dishes that we should maybe include in our Passover seder this year, which is coming up mm-hmm. um, just next week. Uh, what would some of those highlight dishes be? And then we can also share those on the uh, show notes on uh, on the website and on the, uh, you know, wherever people get their podcasts. And, and we'd be glad to share those with people. While you think about that, I just want to point out something. So so we have a lot of friends who in our community here who are Ashkenazi, who really do keep those traditions. And uh, we also have a lot of friends who who choose to eat kidney oat. And, and, you know, they say we live in Israel. And because the majority of Israelis eat kidney oat, 
you know, will adopt the, it's called minhagarov, the, the custom of, of the majority. And, mm-hmm. um, or, or people who didn't used to be religious and became religious or converts can, can choose which customs to accept. And so many of our friends do it. Can you help? But many don't. And it's not even like the bread rice thing. I came to discover levels of, I'll call it craziness, but people call it tradition that it's like mustard. Do you know mustard is kidneyot? So people who do that won't, people who, who don't eat kidneyot won't eat mustard. They won't eat green beans. Okay. Like there's like things that you wouldn't even think about that have anything to do with. You've never had the mustard bread? <laughs> people use mustard no but mustard grains bread. mustard yeah, grains from, the, from the same thing um, so like all of the things that we and never green bean about. is a legume 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 <laughs> um, but all these things that you the never accent. even think about are like are like kidney oath and we're like what are you talking about like you know <laughs> so it's, it's not even like what you can and can't eat it's like really like that, that's or how about or how about kosher pesach toothpaste? No, that's a whole different thing. That yeah, is well, that's just, a whole industry. That's just garbage. That's so okay, so let's and and maybe we'll kind of conclude with this. But like, w- build us your your Passover menu or some some awesome dishes that people can uh, can try out this year for their seder. For Ashkenazim or let's do both. Let's do both. No, we'll, let's go. People who do eat kidneys. everybody. Yeah. I have to say, I do like the matzo ball soup. So we usually have that because that's one of the, in the U.S., that's one of the soups that dishes that has been kind of embraced by a lot of different people. But sometimes we'll do that soup that I was telling you about, the kibbe hamda, which is the little meatball I'm going to look it up, yep. Um, I like, uh, we, our tradition, like it's not Passover, like in the Ashkenazim, they love their brisket. Mm -hmm. Like the, the brisket um, is their dish, which I like. And I had to learn because I was cooking for them, but we have lamb and lamb shanks. So we'll always to us, even if that it's only once a year, that's that one dish we'll do every year. And it's lamb shanks that we roast for hours with allspice and cinnamon. Sometimes, um, we'll do with, uh, string beans or something like that. Cause it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Why wouldn't and, it be? Um, <laughs> And garlic, lots of garlic and lemon. And that's how we eat that. And then I would say rice, of course, but a simple steamed rice with onions. So you have to have that because you have to have the rice with the meat and a salad. Um, And then we'll have, um, there are dishes, there are things that since I wrote the book that I sort of made, I added to my Seder each year because they were some of my favorites that I learned. So for example, one of them is a Greek Passover friendly, friendly spanakopita. So it's Ooh. not made with the phyllo layers of dough. It's a spinach pie. It's non-dairy. How do you, make, you could add dairy. If you how do you make to. it non-dairy? You use a uh, matzo meal crust hmm. and you make a crust on the top and the bottom, like a layer and you fill it with, with spinach and herbs and it's a pie. And that's a nice, it's a really nice um, vegetable side dish. And it's nice too, because you don't have the dairy Yeah. for any time. And I found that even people who are vegan and they don't want the dairy, people are vegetarian, it's like, it's a good all around thing. And then also, but this one I do more for um, Passover week is I like to make these matzah pies, like layered matzah pies, they call them maina or minas. That's very much in the Sephardic. I didn't grow up with it in the Syrian. 
and they're all kinds. And you basically, there's a technique of making the matzah very soft. So it's yeah. literally becomes like a, Pliable. like a flatbread, like yeah. a soft flatbread. And then you layer it and you can do the dairy one, a vegetable one, a meat one, um, whichever kind you like. So I will do those during the week. My, my aunt, by the way, who who's, uh, married my uncle. So she's Halabi. And so we always, we used to do uh, Seder at their house a lot. And during the week of Passover, she'd always take the matzahs, like you say, and kind of wet them a little bit. And my wife yeah. does that. And then she would fill them with like a spiced ground meat and then fry them kind of like almost, uh, you know, taquitos or I don't know, something like that, like egg rolls or, or something. My mother-in-law makes that, uh, makes uh, uh, Pesach burekas. Like doing L- that? Like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and the Georgians, and I have a recipe from the Georgian community that's here in uh, Queens. Like Atlanta or Tbilisi? Which Georgia community are you talking about? Not Atlanta. Not Atlanta. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Republic of. The Republic of. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the Georgian community, there's a there's a big Jewish Georgian community here, and I went there a few times, and they taught me some of their recipes, and they do something called the called blinchikas, which is like blintzes, right? Mm. And they do with the matzah and they have one that they do with dairy and one that they do with meat. And you roll it and then you, like you said, and then you fry it. Um, Getting a lot so of I like here. that one. I, lo- I really like the ones that were different uses of matzah because matzah is such a symbol of Pesach. Yeah. And um, you can do some really great dishes that are uh, creative and also really pretty good. Like I do a matzah lasagna and it's so good that I think when I even served it to people after and not during Pesach, everybody still loved it. You know, like it, I can see that it, it worked. Yeah, it worked really well. So um, I'll do that. And then I do a lot of nut based macaroon, you know, like mm. flourless cookies. Um, so I'll do one with walnuts and dates. I do another one, pine nuts and and uh, almonds. And then there's a Syrian one with um pistachio and orange blossom water that I do. So I do a whole series of little flourless macaroons and you have, I like to do a lot of them. So that's like a whole bunch. And sometimes people have hired me just to do the desserts for them. Are are these recipes on your website? Some are in my uh, blog. Okay. uh, Too good to pass over. And then the, and then some of them I've published in articles and some of them are, and the rest are all in my book. And too good to pass over cookbook. So, so they're all the the nut the nut cookies, and then the layered, you know, flourless, also like almond uh, olive oil cakes. Oh yeah, with yeah. Orange, you know, with orange, like the Spanish kind. I saw your recipe for that, and it looked amazing. It's one of my favorite cakes, actually. It's actually one of my favorite kind of cakes, anyway. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's I delicious. just love almonds and that combination with olive oil and orange. Absolutely, it's just so good. So there's actually, so Benny, there are a lot of great recipes. Got to get creative during Passover, and I think that um, I have to just hire you to you, come and cook for us. That's that's the bottom line. Well, that's one way, uh, but otherwise, I think that um, the way to go about it really is because, you know, a lot of people I interviewed and talked to what I found fascinating. I mean, there were people who explained stories of their memories of Passover that weren't always the most positive or were difficult. It really depended on where they were born, where they grew up and the time, like if they were older, what was happening at that time during that time, you know, where they were. But a lot of the memories, even so I found people said that even though they don't observe Passover, they still observe Passover, but not in 
the detail that they used to, or in observing how their mother for a whole month, you know, from the day after Purim, when Purim is finished, up until the first Seder, like that, that methodical preparation, you know, they said she, you know, my mother was all my mother and she worked so hard and it was just so much yeah. cleaning. And I've just said, forget it. I can never do that again. It's too much time. Is this and that. But then what's really interesting to me is more times than not, a lot of them would express how after they retold the story to me, they became very nostalgic and a little bit, they felt like they felt a little like both very happy because it brought back all these memories and a little bit disappointed or sad that um, they were recognizing that a lot has been lost too mm-hmm. with that. There's like, you can't have one without the other, you know, yeah. it's like, yes, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. I, I don't have it in me to do that anymore. It's too much, uh, whatever, but you do lose a little bit of the spirit sure. when you don't do all of that. And so a lot of that, it's the way you see it. If you see it, that the preparations and the cleaning and taking the the filling out of all the mattresses and the pillows, because that's what they used to do, clean everything and then put back in, re-sew, you know, because they didn't have pillowcases like they do now. So they re-sewed everything. Um, the repainting of the walls and all that stuff. You know, as a kid, they would look at that and they found that spring is here Passover is here because it is so much also, it's not just the story of the Exodus. It is also a celebration of spring. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of other ancient holidays and traditions in the East, in the Middle East, the Near East, you know, you'll see that there's a lot of overlap with um, all these old cultures that are doing similar things. If you look at what they're doing, we're doing in Passover and they're doing maybe even in Nowruz in the Persian community and the Zoroastrian way. And, you know, like symbolic foods and celebrating spring and renewal and hope and abundance, you know? So if you look at all those things, all of a sudden you realize, uh, that is also a big part of it. And if you think about that, then you can, maybe enjoy some of those traditions because it's really only a week, but it's only a week. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know what? And I'll add this and and we can talk about this more after we stop taping, but you got to make it your own. You got to find a way to uh, don't be passive. You know, we're in an age now and, and this could easily be a whole five other podcasts, but we're in an age now where we're not in our communities that we grew up. I mean, you literally moved to another country, you married, uh, a Jew from another culture who's not really keeping her traditions either. And like, y- if you want something in our generation, you you have to make an effort and make it your own. And you have to figure out what that means to make it your own. And you know, okay, so you're not going to do it the way your parents did it or the way her parents did it, but how can you make something and make it meaningful for you and make it your own Pesach, you know, or your own Shabbat or your own this. And that's kind of what I, I think, uh, I think a lot of people in our generation need to do is, is, you f- figure you have to figure that out and that's a journey you have to do but what makes it meaningful for you and your family because at the end of the day what are you going to pass on to your kids you know what are you going to take from it's not a one three thousand year old tradition like i said maybe it's a bunch of three thousand year old traditions and a few two thousand year old traditions and a few hundreds of year old traditions but we're all in this kind of like turbulent time where everything's mixing and matching and you got to figure that out and find something that works for you and your family and you know whether it's a cleaning process, a cooking process, special foods that, you know, the shoulder household is going to make every Pesach, 
you know, what, what are you, what stories are you going to tell and how does the family come together? And, and that's something I think everybody has yeah. to do. And I think, and I think in, in, in so many ways, and it definitely wasn't the right reasons to get to that place, but that's why last year's, uh, uh, Seder for us at least was very special because suddenly we were for the first time not at somebody else's home, not yeah. at our family, yeah. not at our parents or my in-laws, and it was just us and our kids. And there was a big you know discussion: Are we yeah, even going to do, do you this? Do? Or yeah. What are we going to do? And it ended up being a very, very beautiful experience. That's awesome. Just to be with us in our house, and we got dressed up, and we made the dinner, and we made we made lots of things. We had so much food, and it's ridiculous because it's like you know two little kids and us, but we ate and ate and ate, and we had the kids read the read the Haggadah. And, uh, you know, obviously it was April 2020 and, and COVID was new to us. And I think that if we had to do it again this year, I would I would just feel really bummed out about it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's um, yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. You have to make it your, your own. Um, and I guess we'll just wrap up with 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 just saying, you know. I don't know what you are, Jennifer, what you're what you are doing with your family uh, for Pesach. If in New York you're able to get together with other people for Pesach, are you able to get together and do a seto? Uh Well, last year we did a vir- I did a virtual one with uh, actually with my friends. Usually I do family the first night, and then I have friends like extended family oh, friends right. Two the nights second in night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they come over, and um, and I like to do it with like different people. So. We couldn't do that. So what I did was we did the small thing with my family, just my mom, my sister, like just very, you know, core group. And then the second night with the friends that we normally do it with, but we did it virtually. So we had the iPads on either end of our our table. And we actually went around a circle reading from the Haggadah. And uh, but we obviously and then we ate together. You know, we actually ate together. <laughs> oh, you kept it on. Um, and we're talking. And then at some point, the kids went off and they were doing their virtual Seder t- with their friends because they had kids. And then we were doing with our friends. <laughs> and we were just talking and eating, you know. And, and so at least we felt like we didn't just not do it. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to point out, too, that, um, you know, like with COVID, and I even wrote about it in my blog last year about the whole COVID experience and quarantining and what this means. It reminds me, and it reminded me then of other people I had interviewed for the book. And when they told me their experiences um, that were not so easy to observe Pesach openly where they were coming from, namely like in the former USSR. So one person was telling me his experience from Moldova and another from another country. And they were saying how one guy was saying how when he was younger, he knows he would just go to his grandparents and they would just put together a little dinner. They would talk about a few things, but he never really understood what it was. And only later did he really understand Uh that it was Passover Mm -hmm. because they couldn't draw attention to what they were doing as a religious ceremony. And they also didn't have any of that. Like there was none. So, but he he did see his grandmother and his grandfather would do something a little different. You know, they would talk about something. They would do a few little vegetables differently. They would just, whatever they had, because they had nothing. And so they were still doing it however they could. Um, And also people who made matzah. And so when I think about that, sometimes, and especially last year, where I thought, oh, it's really not great. We know these people. And I thought, yeah, but, you know, if if those people could make matzah in secret, and that's really how they did it. Those who were living in ghettos, they had a home that through word of mouth, they would tell people, hey, 
on this day to this day at that house, you can go, you just have to sign up for a shift. Your family would go for a two, three hour, whatever shift. You would make your matzah there. Um, and so nobody else knew except if you're in the community. And they would take the matzah in the cover of darkness at night just so that they fulfilled that one commandment of making the matzah, which really having the matzah and eating it, if you do nothing else, forget the kitniot and the dinner, and the, yeah. if you do nothing else, that is probably the most one of the most important. Sure. Of course, you want to tell the story, but even if you associate the story and then the matzah and you eat the matzah, you are, you are fulfilling the basic the commandment. Yeah. Commandment. Yeah. You know, so. You can do it however simply you want, even if you say, I'm going to eat those things and eat the, so, and you just eat your matzah, but you also eat everything else, you're still recognizing because you're not eating that all, all year round, you right. know, although you can, because here in the U.S. you can oh, buy yeah. the non-Pesach matzah, Which is so and weird. then there's the Pesach matzah. <laughs> Which is so weird. <laughs> you know, well, it's a business. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a business. But um you know, and I and I should say too that um, in the U.S. and again, it gets back to the Americans being very. Cre- I would say Passover is a huge business now. <laughs> like, but people are very serious. They, everyone, so many people are observing Pesach, uh, and but in their own way, they have their own seder plates for things. There, and I've done events for people where they're trying to commemorate. Uh, like some kind of charity or something, or they're raising awareness for something and they want the Seder to reflect like the class and the food we're doing and the Seder to reflect the charity and the awareness that they're raising for this, this particular political thing or whatever it is. It's just money that they want to give or help um, for farmers or whatever. And they're taking a very active role here um, and I think that is part of the American yeah. spirit of exper- being experimental and, you know, not feeling like you have to do it the way you were told, right, yeah. even though you have people not eating, you know, still people are doing all kinds of things for Passover because it just lends itself. Like the fact that you can, uh, you can tell different stories, um, you can bring in what make it contemporary sure. and relevant to now. So and you got to, yeah, you got to make it your own and people are doing that. And uh, I think it's awesome. You know, even if I yeah. do it the traditional way, I, I, yeah. I totally respect However it. However you I, do it. I think it's awesome that, that people want to contemporize it and make it their own and interpret it. And, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's the beauty of traditions and you can, if you can make them your own and contemporize them and contextualize them, I think it's a beautiful thing. And that's our challenge. You know, that's our challenge in these days. Definitely. Awesome. So uh, how can, you know, we've mentioned your blog and your website and your books. Can we just remind uh, those listeners how they can uh, find some of these recipes? How can they buy your books? How can they reach you if they want to sign up for a cooking class or, or do a seminar or whatever it is? Yeah. So um, I guess the easiest way is to go to my website, jenniferabadi.com, because there then you have all the possibilities of how to buy my book. It will take you a link. It's there both available on Amazon, uh, Too Good to Pass Over and A Fistful of Lentils. And then um, if you want to sign up to receive my uh, sort of announcements on my lessons and events and talks and whatever, then you can sign up at the bottom of the website. There's a little um, sign up sheet or you can email me if you're not sure. If you have any questions, you can always email me um, I'm on Instagram, but everything is there if you just go to jenniferabody.com and you can decide whatever you do want to follow or sign up for. Awesome. Awesome. 
So thank you very, very, very much. We wish you a uh, thank you wonderful Pesach wherever you are going to be celebrating, whether it's virtually or with your extended family. Yeah, and uh, we hope for those who were not exposed to the, the truly amazing world of uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi, different kitchens and cuisines. Uh, hopefully this opened you up to it. And uh, Jennifer's books and websites and blogs are a good place to start. Um, and if you're in Israel, you know, we can go out to some of these restaurants. And if you're in the States, give her a call, book her for a, a, a class. If you're in New York, you know, maybe uh, find ways to do that. And we wish everybody a uh, wonderful Pesach, uh, a kosher Pesach for those who care about it, and a meaningful Pesach, I think, for everybody. Absolutely. And I'm yes. so hungry right now. I have to go eat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I have to go eat. Thank you both. Thanks Chag so Sameach. much. Chag Sameach. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.